Want an easy way to start saving and investing? All you need is Acorns and your spare change. Acorns will invest in an expert-built, diversified portfolio for you. On average, Acorns users invest $166 in four months from just their spare change. Plans start at just $3 a month with no hidden fees ever. To sign up and view disclosures, visit acorns.com slash audio. That's acorns.com slash audio. Today with Amazon Business, Shannon Stuckey of Walburn Woodworking helped her team buy 63 circular saws. Okay, Andy, take it easy. Now she uses her time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Using free speech to free minds. You're listening to The David Knight Show. As the clock strikes 13, it's Thursday, the 15th of September, year of our Lord 2022. Day 915 of the emergency. And it looks like we may have another emergency averted at the last minute. We'll talk about an update to the rail strike. Uh, We have um, an interesting back and forth on Dr. Phil with with Lila Rose, who uh, did an excellent job of making the case for life. Uh, We have big military victories. Not abroad, not another in any other country, but against our own government with these vaccine mandates. We're going to talk about that huge uh, turnaround for many people in the, in the military, but the fight is still going on. And then we're going to talk about what is happening in terms of triggers into World War III. Uh, Armenia and uh, other things that are happening with that will be joined in the... Uh, in the third hour, with a, a second hour, rather, uh, a guest who's going to be talking about the Constitution, uh, Constitutional Convention, the CONCON, and the dangers of that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Well, we had at the last minute an aversion, apparently, of uh, the rail strike that was supposed to begin at uh, midnight tonight, 12.01 a.m. Friday. And uh, that was announced uh, this morning at about 5 o'clock Eastern time that they came up with a tentative agreement. Now, this agreement uh, between the unions and the companies will go back to the unions to be uh, voted on. But even if they vote this down, there'll be a cooling off period. So nothing is going to happen uh, for a short period of time. There's no imminent shutdown. And this is a very big deal because about a third of all freight travels on trains. And even when you look at uh, particular areas, like the military has about two-thirds of the Army's equipment travels by train. Uh, So it would have been a massive disruption to supply chains. This is something that the uh, Biden administration did not want right before an election. Uh, So they were doing a lot of things to try to head this off. But there were some interesting options in this. When I looked at this, 
uh, before this announcement happened today. I thought, well, you know, he's got um, executive orders for national emergencies that aren't real one after the other. So why not do something about this? There's a lot of different ways that this could be uh, addressed, uh, but they had negotiations uh, all through the night and announced that at 5 a.m., which is a good thing. Uh, finally, some good news here. Uh, it would have um, uh, critically derailed, if you will, the supply chains across the country in so many different uh, things. Uh, they were reaching the end. The deadline was about uh, another cooling off period. So this may be kicking it down the road, but um, either way, uh, they've been negotiating this for over two years. And so uh, some of the issues and things that have happened uh, recently that have really flared up, uh, two of the largest rail carriers that mainly operate in western United States, BNSF and Union Pacific. Now, BNSF is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company. And uh, these two companies out west seem to be part of the biggest problem. Uh, they began a points-based attendance policy. More than 700 employees have quit since they rolled out that policy at the beginning of this year. Workers uh, can be terminated if they run out of points, even if they have a family emergency. So, uh, as I point out, missing work on certain high-impact days or planning ahead for a single doctor visit can still result in workers losing half or more of their allotted points. Uh, so this is uh, all about attendance and flexible. And it's uh, exactly what you would expect from Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, so how could Congress have gotten involved in this? And so there was a lot of talk. You know, the, the administration is urging these two sides to come together. And, uh, but uh, other than that, not clear what the uh, role of uh, the Biden administration was. But Congress had uh, talked about doing some things. And as uh, Freight Waves, which is um, a website uh, devoted to uh, shipping that I look at because of all of the supply chain issues that are happening in our society, uh, they said, well, there's uh, three things that Congress can do because Congress has stopped this type of thing in the past. The uh, last one of these that we had was in the uh, 1990s. I think it was 1990. Yeah, 1992. Uh, so they had basically three options. One of them they call cram down, where the Congress can impose contractual terms on both labor and management because it's critical infrastructure. The unions clearly uh, expected a generous deal from the current Democrat Congress. Uh, and essentially crammed down. That, uh, that option was being proposed by some Republican uh, congressmen. Uh, the second one was to punt, to just say, well, we're going to extend this for another six months. And then the third one they call playing ball, uh, baseball arbitration. Uh, to avoid an election year distraction, Congress could freeze the status quo, send the dispute to an independent third-party arbitrators. And this is what they did in 1992. Congress ordered baseball arbitration, is what they said. Uh, they directed the appointment of three arbitrators, one each from labor and management, and a third that was jointly selected by both parties. So each one gets to pick one that's an advocate, and then they both have to agree on a third individual. Then they present them with their best and final offers. And the arbit uh, uh, arbiters are not allowed 
to change anything on the offers. I just have to pick between the two uh, offers. And that actually worked in 1992, and they were able to uh, keep the country going. But as I said, the problem is, is that Congress now is so divided that that may not work in order for them to do anything, as we were looking at it yesterday. Uh, they would have to have unanimous decision in order for them to step in. And all it takes, as they said, um, <laughs> is uh, just one person who wants to grandstand. <laughs> Let's see, who was that this time who did that? Well, enter Bernie Sanders. Yes, Bernie Sanders blocked the proposal that would stop a rail strike. So Bernie Sanders shut down any kind of decision like the one that they uh, did any kind of solution, I should say, like what they did in 1992. And that was something that was put together by Democrats. It was uh, John Dingell who put that together as a Democrat from Michigan back in 1992. Uh, but uh, we've got too many people now who are grandstanding. We got too much of a partisan uh, divide in order to be able to do any of that. So we'll see. This may just be kicking the can down the road, but it's going to kick it down until after the election. And uh, so I kind of thought something like that was going to happen, but I thought it was interesting uh, how this has been handled in the past. But again, we don't have a government that can bring itself and rise to the occasion when there's a real emergency. Now, the Biden administration will be uh, breaking its arms, patting itself on the back with all this, nevertheless. Uh, we had, uh, in terms of abortion that I talked about yesterday, I want to go back to that. Uh, because uh, there's there's more discussions about the federalization of abortion, this time by Congress instead of by the Supreme Court. And uh, Reason has uh, weighed in on that. And uh, they agreed with me, with my position yesterday, which is kind of interesting. We don't always agree on things, but uh, I'll, I'll tell you what they had to say. But I think the most important thing that happened yesterday was this back and forth between Lila Rose and Dr. Phil, uh, the psychologist who has had a long-term uh, talk, uh, talk show. And so he brought her in with a hostile, loaded audience and with other panelists, all of them pro-abortion. And she came in as the only person. And she did a fantastic job. <laughs> she really did, especially in that environment. Uh, all you need is to stand for the truth and to stand for life and what is right. And you win. You really do. Uh, and she was, she kept her cool. And she, with all the people who were so angry and yelling and screaming at her, she kept her cool. And she made very important points. Uh, so uh, Dr. Phil began by saying the predicate of your position, that life begins at fertilization and that science is very clear about that. Uh, you have to know that there is no consensus among the scientific community. Is that how we decide things, Dr. Phil? <laughs> uh, I'm so sick and tired of hearing this. Well, what is the scientific consensus? I don't care what the scientific. Give me the science, right? Show me your work. Show me your data. Let's have a debate about this. Again, as I've said for the last two plus years, and even longer than that, I always said this about the climate McGuffin. I said, uh, stop talking about people being climate deniers because they deny your take. Uh, your take from the people who have models that have been proven not to work. 
for the last 50 years. All the predictions have failed. You know, that scientific consensus? Well, that's not a scientific consensus. If you got a theory that fails to predict anything accurately, well, that's a failed theory. And if you're trying to hide your data instead of allowing people to see it and to uh, review it, that's not science either. And so again, you know, scientific consensus. She says, uh, she said in reply, she said, there is a consensus, Dr. Phil. 96% of scientists say that life begins at fertilization. And if you're an in vitro specialist, you're looking to create a single cell embryo. And then you know you have a new human life. So it is a scientific fact, Dr. Phil. There is no consensus among the scientific community that life begins at conception. Lila says that's simply inaccurate. 96% of biologists affirm this fact. And he says, well, actually it's not. Well, when do you say human life begins? She asked him. It doesn't matter what I think. And I don't care what I think. What I'm saying is the scientific community does not have a consensus about when life begins. Well, if he doesn't even care about what he thinks, if he doesn't know what he thinks, how does he know what the scientific community thinks? And on what basis? This is how idiotic this whole thing is. And that's why I wanted to talk about this, because in so many different issues, we have people who say, well, it doesn't matter what I think. The people in authority say this. Academia says this. And that was what Francis Bacon was pushing against when he created the scientific method. He said, we're going to have, if you got a theory about something, then fine, we'll have to test it. We'll have to see, does uh, your theory actually work? Is it repeatable? Uh, can we measure this? What is your data? And so on. Uh, this is not science. And I'm really sick and tired of people pushing out orders from a bunch of people, from a community that has been bought and sold for my entire lifetime. I mean, you go back and look at uh, uh, the, the speech from Eisenhower about the military-industrial complex. He included academia in that. And he was concerned that all scientific research and all these was being subsumed by all the money that was being poured into it. These people are bought and sold, academia is. And they're going to go with whatever the mob, the group think is, because that's where their bread is buttered. And so she replied to that. She said, uh, no, this is what the scientific community does have a consensus about. She said, you're simply inaccurate. A single cell embryo is a unique new human life. Dr. Phil says, well, you can go to the body of scientific literature and you can find neuroscientists who say that it begins when there is a detectable brainwave. She said, but Dr. Phil, in an abortion, if it's not a human life, why do you have to kill it? And so, well, if anybody wants to fact check me instead of speak over me, you can go to the scientific literature. And so after the interview, she said, I think what he was trying to get at, see, he doesn't understand even really what the issue is. The issue isn't when life begins, really. What he's trying to do is make a case of when personhood begins. Uh, what her point was, she said, uh, you know, it's only a small group of people who doesn't say, who say that that is not alive, that's not, that's not a human being. And um, the reality is, is that when does this human being become a person? She said, uh, I think he was trying to argue the pro-abortion position that a human child's personhood somehow gets assigned after birth, but he's wrong there too. Uh, Any time in human history, when we deny personhood or human rights to humans because of any factor, it could, it's been in the past, we've denied personhood on the basis of race, 
on the basis of age, on the basis of sex, on the basis of religion. And of course, we could do it on the basis of their medical condition. I'm sorry, the quality of life is just not that good. Let's just kill them. Uh, That's the euthanasia. That's on the back end, uh, the bookend of abortion. Uh, We open the door when we do that to history's worst human rights abuses, the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, slavery. A human embryo is small and dependent, but so is a human newborn or a toddler. Your size, your development, your level of dependency does not dictate your humanity or your worth. And then she had this back and forth with an audience member. Uh, audience member, she kept her cool. Listen to this. Uh, it's very difficult to hear her uh, because the audience member keeps speaking over her and they wouldn't remove the audience member's microphone so Lila could answer the question. But you'll get the idea. There is nothing you could possibly say to justify that level of lack of empathy. Yeah, hostile audience. I feel like in this country at the moment, we were founded on the lack of empathy, and we've just kept up with that tradition. Oh, yeah. You have no empathy. Hate America, hate kids. Devastating to women's mental health. No one talks about that. The year after a woman has an abortion. It's really like the year after a woman to have the child. What kind of trauma is that? The trauma is from the rape. The trauma is from the rape. The child's an innocent party there. The child is born yet. It's not there. We we should not take out generational sin on a child to say there's generational sin and that dad was an abuser so the child should be killed. That's not fair to the child. We're talking about rights. And he just said we've been taken, a right has been taken away from us. And what is next? I want to address that because our fundamental human right that we all share in this room is life. It's the first human right. Laws are meant to protect the weak. In a society, who's the weakest? Who's the weakest in a society? A child. The poor. They don't have a voice. They can't speak. A child the in the room. That's or a, weak. But the a poor poorest. child would be the weakest. And we're going to keep them that way by and a, and making a child with disability. Listen, kids. whether you live 10 minutes or 10 years or 100 years, you're a human life and you have the right to not be killed. And that's what the pro-life fight is all about. That's what we're fighting for, a culture of life where we provide real health care. You know, abortion is the intentional destruction of an innocent human life. Great job. Great job. A couple of comments here. Um, Angus Mustang, thank you for the tip. He says, Dr. Phil, it's Obama's hand puppet, much like Biden is uh, Obama's. Well, yeah, I said uh, thank you. Uh, I don't watch Oprah. I don't watch Dr. I'd never seen him before. Well, that I've heard his name so many times, but I saw him in the back and forth, which I I just read you, uh, but I saw him in the back and forth with uh, Lila Rose, and uh, he's not really all there. I mean, it's for somebody that earns his living talking. I mean, it's uh, there really wasn't much there. Uh, so thank you, Angus, uh, for the tip, and uh, thank you, Geesebusters, Geesebusters. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so then we take a look at the legal aspects of this. Lindsey Graham, as I pointed out yesterday, he wants to try to now federalize abortion again. I've said for the longest time, uh, I've always said that the, uh, the uh, proper approach was the Tenth Amendment, and the Supreme Court did something that I never thought they would do to divest themselves from the uh, some of the powers that they had usurped. And so hats off to them. I, that really surprised me when they did that, when the Dobbs decision from Alito came out. 
And Clarence Thomas immediately said, you know, there's a lot of other things that we have um, uh, taken the power to do that we don't have the authority to do because of the Tenth Amendment and things like that, because of federalism just in general. Uh, the idea that uh, this country was designed with checks and balances. We don't want to have a centralized, top-down pyramid structure with either the Biden, you know, the, the president at, at the top issuing executive orders or the Supreme Court issuing its opinions and treating them as if they were constitutional amendments. Uh, we don't want to have a system like that. And I said, you know, it, it's, it's great that they've made this uh, decision here. And I liked the basis of the decision. The Supreme Court came in and did not get tied up into uh, when does life begin? That's not their decision to make. And, uh, but they said, uh, you know, we're not going to set a, an arbitrary line here as Roe v. Wade did. And I thought that was exactly the right thing to do and uh, to respect the Constitution. And I said, you know, we've had over 60 million babies killed in the last 50 years. And we could have avoided most of that not all of it, but most of it, because you would have had states that would have not only allowed abortion, but would have incentivized it, as we already see happening in California, New York, and other places like that. They want to encourage it. They'll do everything they can uh, to make it happen. And so there will continue to be abortion. You're not going to eliminate it. Uh, you're not going to, uh, to stop something that uh, is um, uh, being aided by state governments. But I said you would have been able to, the, the appropriate response from the state of Texas in this Roe v. Wade decision would have been, because that was where it came from, was Texas, would have been to say, okay, the Supreme Court has issued their opinion, let's see them enforce it, uh, which is what we saw from Andrew Jackson uh, when uh, the Supreme Court changed its opinion about something. You know, They had been with Andrew Jackson in terms of the relocation of the Cherokee Nation. And then when they saw what the policy really looked like, they said, no, no, we don't like that. And they pulled back on it, but they didn't. You know, he, he had a horrible policy, but he had the constitutional authority to do it. And he said, all right, they've uh, issued their opinion. Let's see them enforce it. Uh, the reality is, is that we have, to, um, we have to have the rule of law. We don't want to have a dictatorship. We don't want to have a concentrated, centralized government because that is a very dangerous thing. But Lindsey Graham does. Because Lindsey Graham is a neocon, rhino, Republican in name only, warmongering uh, idiot who wants to concentrate all power in Washington. You know, he is a um, controlled opposition. He's a big statist. And so what he did was he came back and he said, all right, well, let's try to uh, assuage this. Let's let's cut the baby essentially in half, and, and we will uh, raise it uh, from the levels. You know, you got several states that are coming out here just shutting it off under all circumstances. Other ones are saying, well, you know, it's seven weeks or something. He goes, well, we'll do it at fifteen weeks. So we'll, we'll compromise it on that issue, and then what we'll do is we'll have a some more compromising where we will put it in federal law that there will be. Um, exceptions for rape and other things like that, which are also not in some of these states. So the pro-life people need to understand that, first of all, uh, Lindsey Graham is compromising uh, both the protection of life and the Constitution and the Tenth Amendment and the separation of powers. And so reason uh, says that. 
They said, uh, based on the audacious claim of congressional authority to regulate abortion that obliterates the constitutional distinction between state and federal powers, uh, Graham, if successful, would renationalize a controversy that Roe's opponents would have long argued should be settled state by state. That's right. That's what I've been saying all along. And we could have saved millions, tens of millions of lives if we would have done it that way. So just from a pragmatic standpoint, you understand that doing it on a state-by-state basis will allow some of the states to do the right thing. Some of the states are never going to do the right thing. And some of the states are never going to do the right thing, even if you have a federal, uh, the federal government getting into this. But what it'll do, the, the, it'll concentrate power again in the federal government, and it'll stop the states from doing the right thing. You understand? It's not going to help with the, you know, just as you've got uh, gun control laws. Gun control laws don't stop the criminals. And uh, a federal abortion law is not going to stop the criminal states. But it will stop the ones that are trying to protect life. Uh, so, uh, and it will destroy the Constitution. So as uh, Reason said, in practical terms, a 15-week ban is far milder than the restrictions that many states have already imposed or begun to enforce in recent months. Uh, Graham's bill would establish a new precedent for national restrictions on the timing of abortion. Activists hope to build on that precedent of Graham with progressively stricter limits that would apply even in states where most legislatures and voters oppose them. Uh, But um, uh, that's not going to happen. It's going to go the other way. And hopefully this isn't going to go through because we've got people, uh, West Virginia uh, Congressman uh, Shelley Moore, I think uh, maybe it's a female. I don't know who. uh, No, Shelley Moore Capito. That's a guy, I think. Anyway, male or female. We will have to determine its pronouns later. Uh, I don't think there's an appetite for national platform here. Uh, My state today is working on this. I'm not sure where Graham is, what he's thinking, uh, but I don't think there will be a rally around that concept. And uh, Mitch McConnell said the same thing. My preference would be for decisions to be made on a state-by-state basis. As uh, Reason says, uh, well, on the preference of it, that preference is mandatory under the Constitution. Yeah, I'll, I'll got a preference that it would do it on state-by-state. He doesn't even talk about whether or not that's constitutional, right? <laughs> but uh, that, that, that should be the determining factor here. And... Um, Uh, They said uh, uh, the states, by contrast, retain a broad police power that in the absence of Roe can be used to restrict or prohibit abortion. What are they talking about in reason? See, in the absence, now that Roe is gone, now we can get back to the Constitution, right? What? Their position is that Roe v. Wade modified the Constitution. And that's one of the things that I think is so hopeful about Clarence Thomas's comments. That, uh, that, you know, we're going to have to go back and revisit some of these other things that pretend to have amended the Constitution and that have ruled in areas where the federal government does not have any jurisdiction, and that includes a Congress. So I'm glad the reason is coming around to looking at this now that Roe is out of the way. We can go back to looking at what the Constitution has said. Better late than never that they start to look at federalism, but it was there all along. Uh, Roe v. Wade did not overrule the Tenth Amendment. Uh, so Graham cites the fact the federal government's power to regulate interstate commerce. This is another thing that he's 
about, right? And again, interstate commerce has been the Swiss army knife to let the government do anything they want. You know, they've got the general welfare clause that they sometimes use. They use the interstate commerce clause. This goes back to uh, first started using that with uh, FDR when he wanted to put some price controls on uh, agriculture. And you had a guy who said, well, I I don't want to take these subsidies. I'm not going to be limited by these price controls. And Took him to court. The court said, well, no, even though you're not selling your produce or whatever he was growing uh, across state lines, uh, just by selling it internally in the state market, that is affecting everything. And so you're going, we're going to uh, take these regulations inside of the state. Well, that was the wrong thing to do. But they have also uh, applied this to a lot of other things. Uh, they pointed out that, uh, and reason, they said um, the, the sophistries about the uh, Commerce Clause uh, were epitomized by a 2005 decision in which the Supreme Court said the Commerce Clause was broad enough to encompass a state-authorized medical marijuana that was never sold and never crossed state lines and never even left the grower's property. Clarence Thomas warned in his dissent about that. He said if Congress can regulate this under the Commerce Clause, then it can regulate virtually anything. And the federal government is no longer one of limited and enumerated powers. That's what we got to get to. That's what Clarence Thomas understands. And it's what Lindsey Graham does not want. One of the other decisions that was about the uh, Commerce Clause, of course, is also about abortion. And they talked about that in the Reason article, the 2003 Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, uh, which, unlike Graham's bill, restricts methods rather than timing, Uh, applied to abortions in or affecting interstate or foreign commerce. They put that in there. And how does that work? As uh, Independence Institute scholar David Koppel and University of Tennessee law professor Glenn Reynolds have noted, that language is baffling to any person who is not familiar with the Commerce Clause sophistries of the 20th century. It is not really possible to perform an abortion, quote, in or affecting interstate or foreign commerce, unquote, unless a physician is operating a mobile abortion clinic on the Metro liner, is what they said. It's like, how are you doing the, the abortion while you're crossing state lines? This makes absolutely no sense. But that was put in there to um, support life. And that's why I say we have to be, we have to make sure there are plenty of avenues that are available for us where we can support life and not destroy the Constitution and create a federal dictatorship. And uh, they pointed out that when the Supreme Court looked at the partial birth abortion ban, and um, they said, well, that's consistent with uh, Roe v. Wade back in 2007. Uh, They said it's not a, Roe v. Wade was about the timing of uh, when personhood begins or when life begins or whatever. I want to say, I think it's really about personhood. But they said, uh, this is about the method. And so this doesn't conflict with Roe. They were still trying to hold Roe sacred. And I thought they always would. That's why I say I was surprised about that. But when they did that, uh, Clarence Thomas noted in the concurring opinion that upheld the partial birth abortion ban. He said, uh, whether the act constitutes a permissible exercise of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause is not before the court. 
He just threw out that clause. This has nothing to do with anything, the Commerce Clause. And so we should be very careful uh, about the, the ways that we try to protect life. There's a uh, pragmatic concern about it. We want to try to minimize this. Uh, we want to try to stop it if possible, but uh, minimize it and, and make sure that in some areas we are uh, not going to uh, uh, be prevented from stopping it. Uh, but as they summarize here, they said Republican members of Congress typically claim to be more concerned about constitutional limits on their powers. But Graham's bill shows that they are often willing to sacrifice their principles that they say they have to advance policies that they favor. This cavalier attitude is short-sighted as well as unprincipled. If Congress can force states to allow abortion, it can also prevent them from allowing it. Conversely, if Congress can restrict abortion under the Commerce Clause, it can also establish a statutory right that precludes state regulation. That position would make abortion policy throughout the country contingent on the vicissitudes of federal elections. Like I said yesterday, it's just going to be, you know, in and out, in and out, in and out with each election. Instead of a diversity of policies based on a diversity of opinions, in a vast nation of 50 states and 332 million people, we would get always just one that was always subject to change, depending on who happened to be in power. And that's exactly why we want to have federalism. We want to be able to have different experiments. And we want to be able to, without federal intervention, without federal interference, without federal intimidation, uh, if possible, we want to have a society that can be virtuous. And as I said yesterday, let that society be the city on the hill. And um, that is what uh, Lindsey Graham is trying to shut down. I had a listener who said, uh, as I was talking about uh, John Roberts, and I says, isn't it interesting? Uh, he really did not want to have Roe v. Wade go away because he understands that that is really a linchpin of their power. And Alito and Thomas understand that as well. And so um, I said, uh, isn't it interesting? I always believed, and I still believe, especially since no investigation has been done of the leak, that it was Roberts. And so a listener uh, sent this to me and said, um, uh, this, this guy was groomed for this position. You probably heard this clip at one time, or maybe not. Yeah, it was new to me a few months ago, and I had heard it, and I had forgotten about this, so thanks for sending this to me. Uh, Joe Biden speaking at him when he was having his hearing. Now, there's a couple of things you'll hear at the beginning of this clip. Joe Biden's absolute and utter contempt for the written Constitution. Oh, yeah, we got to have uh, the capability to make this thing a living document and to adapt it as we wish. Uh, for the situation. Uh, we don't want to be limited by the uh, text of the Constitution. That's an abhorrent, antiquated uh, document, and we don't want to be limited by that. Uh, and this is the guy that, you know, he's now just a figurehead, uh, but he's not going to have any, they're not going to have any problems with this guy. He has always been a statist. He has always pushed for a dictatorship. And he has always been highly authoritarian. He came up with some of the most authoritarian policies about the war on drugs that have locked up so many people. 
uh, Joe Biden, one of the most despicable people, uh, and uh, he hasn't gotten any more endearing by becoming elderly uh, and, and borderline senile, if not senile. But here he is uh, talking to uh, John Roberts. And at the end of this, listen to what Biden says about how John Roberts and these people are going to be laying the foundation for all the types of microchip implants and brain manipulation that Davos wants to do. We've had to struggle against those who saw the Constitution as frozen in time, Judge. But time and again, we've overcome and the Constitution has remained relevant and dynamic. Thanks to the proper interpretation, in my view, of the ennobling phrases. Thanks for rewriting it. Purposely placed in what I refer to as our civic Bible, the Constitution. He rewrites and the Bible. Again, that will. When it should be even more <laughs> obvious to all Americans, we need increased protections for liberty. As we look around the world and we see thousands of people persecuted because of their faith, women unable to show their faces in public, children maimed and killed for no other reason than they were born in the wrong tribe. They were trying to be born. And once again, when it should be obvious, we need a more energetic national government to deal with the challenges of the new millennium, terrorism, the spread of weapons of mass destruction, pandemic disease, religious and now conservatives are terrorists. Once again, our journey now we have the pandemic, is under right? attack and is coming from, in my view, the right. There are judges, scholars, and opinion leaders who belong to this group of people who are good, honorable, and patriotic Americans. They believe the Constitution provides no protection against government intrusion into highly personal decisions like the Shivo case. Decisions about birth, about marriage, about family, about religion. There are those who would slash the power of our national government, fragmenting it among the states in the new reading of the 10th and 11th Amendment. Incredibly, some even argue, as you well know, people won't believe this, but some are arguing today in the Constitution exile group who argue that the national government has no power to deal with what's going on in the Gulf at this moment. Judge, I don't believe the Constitution, I don't believe in a Constitution where individuals uh, uh, could for very long have accomplished what we did had we read it in such a narrow way. Like the founders, I believe our Constitution is as big and as grand and as great as its people. Our constitutional journey did not stop with women being barred from being lawyers, with 10-year-olds working in coal mines, or black kids forced into different schools than white kids. Just because the Constitution, in the Constitution, nowhere does it mention sex discrimination, child labor, segregation. It doesn't mention it. Our constitutional journey did not stop then, and it must not stop now, Judge. And we'll be faced with equally consequential decisions in the 21st century. Can a microscopic tag be implanted in a person's body to track his every movement. There's actual discussion about that. You will rule on that. Mark my words before your tenure is over. And Can you'll do what we scans say. be used to determine whether a person is inclined toward criminality or violent behavior? You will rule on that. Yeah. Can brain scans be used to determine whether or not a person is a criminal? Well, you know, scientific phrenology. You know, let's, let's measure the uh, bumps on your head to see if you're a criminal. Uh, we'll look at your profile. Uh, or maybe we'll look at your electrical signals to determine if you're a criminal. You heard all of that. You heard all of that. And the utter contempt that he has for the Constitution. Yeah, the Constitution allowed every evil that society can imagine. And you see there, 17 years ago, uh, the same type of America-hating, Constitution-hating rhetoric that uh, is being taught in the schools in CRT.
You know, every evil under the sun was, uh, and you even heard it in that question um, to uh, Lila Rose. This country was founded without any empathy, and we are now still in that empathy. No, it was founded to have a division of power, and of course, all of these evils that are happening uh, are not to be necessarily, uh, you know, just because something is evil doesn't mean that you should make a federal case out of it. And uh, prior to Joe Biden and people of his ilk usurping the kinds of power that they do, uh, it was common for people to say, well, don't make a federal case out of it, you know. Uh, already at that point in time when people were looking at it, it was the idea that if anything is important, it needs to be solved by the federal government. No, we don't. We want to have the important, the more important the issue, the more vital it is for us to have different approaches in different states. And that's why the Constitution says that unless you've been given, specifically given, authority to act in one area, you don't have it. And that power is retained by the states and by the people. And you can't presume that you have it. But that's been his entire career. He presumes the power to go to war with whoever he wishes. He presumes the power to decide whether or not the uh, government can put microchips into you, or whether or not they can force you to be injected with a genetic code injection, right? Foreshadowing all this stuff, even talking about a pandemic. That was in 2005. He was well aware of it. He was well aware of dark winter in 2001. And of course, in 2005, they also ran through this um, uh, re-upping of the uh, legal immunity for the vaccine companies, uh, the PrEP Act. It was run through in 2005, and you better believe that Joe Biden was in on that, which took away our ability to uh, uh, get compensation from the government and from corporations from this fascist combination that he loves so much. And when they harm you, you can't sue them according to getting any compensation according to the PREP Act that happened at the same time he's lecturing him about a pandemic. He's been on this thing from the very beginning. And he absolutely hates the Constitution. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about, however, a military victory against this particular. Amazon Business Honors Jill Lau, Chief Procurement Officer of Global Network Bank. Last week, Jill saved big and used Amazon Business to help her team buy 327 headsets. Now Bob can keep his conversations to himself. Wait, am I still on speakerphone? With business buying easier than before, Jill now uses her extra time to focus on growing something big. Buy smarter, dream bigger. Visit Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Thank you for holding Hang it up, Bob. Football is back, and so is your chance to win with Bed River Sportsbook app. Featuring our new multi-game same-game parlay, combine the action of multiple same-game parlays in one bet for more action and bigger payouts. Bet the spread, bet the over, bet player props, and more. Throw in daily odds boost plus award-winning customer service, and it's a touchdown. Download it today. Must be 21 plus. Available in Illinois only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, help is available. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Tyrant, several of them. We'll be right back. The Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. 
their commons project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com Well, the Rockefeller Foundation is uh, getting behind in a very big way getting behind uh, with millions of dollars and also millions of dollars from the U.S. government to use behavioral psychology to nudge people uh, to get COVID vaccines, to get boosters. This is nothing new, actually. What is new is the fact that they've uh, renewed this. They've brought in more money. They've brought in more institutions to escalate this. I've said from the very beginning for the last uh, over two and a half years, I said there's no science behind any of the stuff that they're doing except for behavioral science. There's no science to justify the masks, the lockdowns, the vaccines. No science for any of that, but they do have behavioral psychology. That was always a part of it. So now the Rockefeller Foundation, the National Science Foundation, and other nonprofits are pouring millions of dollars into a research initiative to, quote, increase the uptake of COVID-19 vaccines, the Trump shots and other recommended public health measures by countering misinformation and disinformation. And so uh, this is going to be a full-on war against your right to know, a full-on war against debate, a full-on war against transparency, disclosure, review. It's a war on science itself using behavioral psychology. And during the Trump administration, if you recall, they announced that they were going to have a $250 million ad council campaign, the biggest campaign the ad council has ever had. And we've been bludgeoned by ad council campaigns in the past. This is uh, your brain on drugs, or only you can prevent forest fires. Remember all that stuff? Oh, that was all ad council stuff. This is bigger than any of those. And uh, you didn't see it in TV commercials exclusively, but... A lot of that money was channeled into places like YouTube in order to push narratives and to suppress narratives. So it's kind of gone gone underground instead of all of these uh, Smokey the Bear uh, commercials or uh, these other ones. Anyway, and I also reported the summer of 2020, I think it was in July, Yale University released a study. And they had about 10 points. I still have it up at roundtablereport.com, uh, the article I did on it. <clears throat> they had about 10 different uh, areas of how they were going to manipulate people. 
Well, we can use the argument that it's for the good of the community, which is the one that you hear all the time from these uh, uh, people like Al Mohler and Franklin Graham and other people like that. Well, you, you need to do this in order to love your neighbor, right? It's for the good of the community. Just, just take the shot. Or they would talk about uh, how, um, uh, you know, it, uh, how, how would you feel? If you're responsible for somebody getting this because you didn't take the vaccine, because the vaccine is going to stop you from transmitting it and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, they had every angle of argument that they were going to do. Now what they're going to do with this money, the direction that they're going, and Yale is still involved. Uh, Yale is a, a part of this, but they've also now brought in uh, other different uh, universities, the University of Chicago, University of Pennsylvania. You know, University of Pennsylvania seems to always get involved in this really dark science. They were the ones who were, um, you know, you saw in Pennsylvania, I think it might have been the University of, I can't remember if it was the University of Pennsylvania or the University of Pittsburgh, if there is such a thing, uh, being involved in this uh, harvesting of baby organs for transhumanist testing. But anyway, they have University of Michigan, Vanderbilt, Yale, all these uh, usual suspects <laughs> are there. And they put this, rolled this thing together into something they call the Mercury Project and announced uh, $7.2 million in funding. I looked at that and I thought, Mercury Project. That's kind of odd to use Mercury when you're talking about encouraging, uh, to call it Mercury when you're talking about encouraging people to use vaccines, right? <laughs> That's been one of the biggest strikes against them was that they used Mercury as a, <clears throat> um, as a preservative. Why? Because, you know, any... Anything that could get in there that would spoil it, that was alive, it would kill, right? And so for a while there, they were injecting um, people with uh, mercury that was there as a preservative. And um, I, I was astonished when I learned of that because I'd had a, a previous exper experience decades ago. I tried uh, using contact lenses and uh, the cleaning solution. I couldn't find a cleaning solution that just didn't turn my eyes blood red. So I go, what? So I just stopped. And then years later, I had an ophthalmologist who said, uh, why don't you try contact lenses? And I said, well, I told him what had happened. And he goes, oh, well, he said, I said, I'm, I'm allergic, I think, to thimerosal, which was in all the solutions at the time. He goes, well, thimerosal is just mercury. <laughs> he said, we don't use that anymore. Uh, but they were using it at the time in vaccines as a preservative. Because, you know, you can't see what the irritation that's doing to your body, like you can when it's your eyes turning blood red. And so I thought, well, that's kind of interesting since mercury's got such a bad rap in conjunction with vaccines that they would call it the Mercury Project. And I thought, well, maybe what they're referring to is mercury theater. Oh, that could be it, right? That was what Orson Welles called his, uh, his mercury theater that ran that War of the Worlds a uh, thing that scared everybody half to death that Halloween. So I thought, well, maybe that's it. You know, War of the Worlds, theater. Yeah, that'd be a great <laughs> reference for our project, the Mercury Project. I, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. I didn't see where they came up with an idea for that, but it doesn't seem to fit uh, any other way. Uh, behavioral change lies at the heart of the Mercury Project. It'll issue three-year research grants. See, they're not giving up on this. Uh, they, they're playing this for the long term. It'll look at the causal impacts of misinformation and disinformation online 
and offline outcomes in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, including differential impacts across socio-demographic groups. Now, the Yale study that was published in uh, the summer of 2020, again, I think it was July, uh, that focused on different arguments that they could use to gaslight people into getting these and to pressure them and to coerce them and make them feel guilty and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, and uh, now what they're doing is they're focusing this on different demographic groups. That's the purpose of this. The research will include interventions that target the producers or the consumers of misinformation and disinformation. In other words, people like me. People like me. As a matter of fact, uh, the uh, Rebel News has just been served with a lawsuit from Trudeau's disinformation czar. It's already happening. Lawsuits to shut you down because you disagree with what they say. So, you know, just use lawfare against you or use a, a czar against you. Uh, so it's coming. It's coming. And uh, so some of the interventions that are offered by the Rockefeller Foundation include, quote, literacy training for secondary school students to help students identify COVID-19 vaccine misinformation, equipping trusted messengers with communication strategies to increase COVID-19 vaccination demand, using social networks to share tailored, community-developed messaging to increase COVID-19 vaccination demand. Why is it that they are so hell-bent, and I mean it literally, hell-bent on increasing vaccine demand? Why is that their singular focus? It's not a focus on disease. It's not a focus on health, even. Right? I mean, for the longest time, uh, you've had the AMA focused on disease rather than on health. But now they're not focused on disease or health. They're focused on vaccines, period. End of story. They make a lot of money from it, but they can make a lot of money helping people with health. Right? Why is this a singular focus? And again, now the focus is going to be demographics. It's going to be focusing on kids at an early age, uh, propagandizing them in school, because that's what the schools are for, right? Always have been. And uh, then attacking people who are the producers of misinformation and disinformation. They're going to be elevating that. They've been doing it for quite some time. The research groups funded by the Mercury Project are operating with the intent, says Zero Hedge, to tailor vaccination narratives to fit different ethnic and political backgrounds, looking for the key to the gates of each cultural kingdom and convincing them to take the jab. And so you see some of the titles, uh, some of the sections that they have with this. Boosting Boosters, a mega study to increase vaccination at scale. At scale. Uh, building a better toolkit to fight misinformation. Large collaborative projects to combat anybody that is telling you the truth uh, that they don't agree with. Harnessing the influencers to counter misinformation. So these would be the propagandists that they're going to harvest. And that's where a lot of this money from Trump's <clears throat> uh, $250 million ad council thing went. You had a lot of influencers, quote unquote, you know, but, uh, teenagers who were interviewing Fauci and getting paid to do it to their audience. Oh, you got a lot of views on YouTube. You're an influencer, so we're going to give you money if you'll push the vaccine. Sure. 
and we'll promote you on YouTube. Sure. All about that. But I think it's also going to be, we need to understand that it's not just going to be the people out there who are pushing their narrative. It's also going to be shills out there who are going to discredit their side by mixing in lies when they tell you the truth about the stuff and then mixing in sensational lies. That's one of the most damaging things that can be done with all this stuff. And uh, we know some people in alternative media who do that as a, as a business model, don't we? I can think of several that I've talked about on a regular basis. I used to work for one. The most effective people are the shills who will put out the disinformation uh, because it sensationalized, because it'll make a lot of money. And um, there'll always be people who believe them. And then what they'll do is they'll come in and they'll easily debunk this for the rest of the people. And then say, and, and then all the rest of the stuff they told you about this is false as well. That is the most effective way for them to counter uh, any criticism of what they're doing. So uh, the Mercury Project says Zero Hedge. Its focus is propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. The very basis of the existence of the Mercury Project presupposes that individuals cannot be trusted to make up their own minds about the information they're exposed to. And of course, it has. Um, Connections with um, Gavi, uh, Bill Gates's organization as well. So getting to rebel news, as I said before, Trudeau's disinformation czar has served them with a lawsuit. Um, you have um, Ezra there says that um, they've just served him personally as well as the organization. And it's come from Trudeau's disinformation czar. Uh, Jean-Christophe Boucher, I guess, uh, is the way he pronounces, if that's the French pronunciation, I don't know. They always like to put an R on the end of things to try to trip up people who are English speakers. I mean, I would look at it and I'd say, uh, Boucher. You know, I'm sure that it's not Boucher. It's probably Boucher. He said, I first heard this guy a few years ago, said Ezra Levant, when he published a bizarre report subject to no academic peer review. The report was called disinformation, and Russia-Ukrainian war on Canadian social media. He said the report itself was disinformation because it wasn't a neutral or scholarly study. It was funded by Trudeau's Department of National Defense. Boucher's report said that anyone who vocally opposed Justin Trudeau could be flagged as a Russian agent. He says, I'm serious. Let me quote directly from page three of his study. One of the criteria for Boucher to flag you as a Putin agent was, quote, promoting a specific mistrust of Canada's liberal government and especially of Prime Minister Trudeau, unquote. I mean, this is a, you criticize my party, you criticize Trudeau personally. Well, you are a Putin agent. What's the criteria for it? He says, well, I'm not a Putin agent. In fact, I wrote a best-selling book called Ethical Oil about how Canada must produce ethical oil and gas to displace Russian oil and gas. I was so harsh on Putin that it's not safe for me or my family members to travel to Russia. He said, after Boucher's report came out, I did a Rebel News broadcast refuting it, and I sent him a private letter demanding that he correct the errors and the smears against me. But instead... Uh, of correcting the errors, instead of even replying, he's suing me and Rebel News 
for daring to challenge him and his report. So that's the way this, uh, the contours of this are going to uh, work out in the battle that we have. But let me just say this. We've had some, um, we've had some good, uh, we've had some good responses uh, and some, some wins here, some big wins. Uh, we have the uh, lawsuit that I've talked about many times with the Navy SEALs. It began with the Navy SEALs, but now it has expanded into a class action suit across all of the Navy. And um, they've had a real victory in this. This is why I say to people who are in the military, people who are anywhere in this fight, you got to hang in there. Go with your principles and don't uh, give up with this. Use critical thinking, use your principles, and stay the course. Even if you lose, uh, you win. But these guys are winning. Uh, this could be, by the way, the most important fight for our country, Constitution, liberty of their career, of anybody in the military's career. Uh, you, when you defend liberty and the Constitution here in America where it's under attack, that is the most important thing you could be doing. The most important thing. Uh, so in order for Navy SEALs, uh, ordering them to take the jabs, uh, has been rolled back very quietly by the U.S. Navy, according to a new report. Fox News said the details come in in a recent court document that were just released this last week. The order, called Trident Order Number 12, disqualified SEALs seeking religious exemptions from the vaccines, the Trump shots. It excluded them from or disqualified them from any training, any traveling, any deployment, or conducting other standard business. It was first issued September the 24th, 2021. This has gone on. These people have been fighting and resisting this now. And this war, this war, for, real war for our liberty, a real war for our Constitution. They've been resisting this and fighting this for nearly a year. Here we are, the 15th. All right, we're only nine days away from an anniversary of this. Uh, so it was an order that went out September 24th, 2021, by Vice Chief of Naval Operations. Let's name this guy, this traitor to the Constitution. Admiral William Lesher and all special warfare forces were initially expected to come into compliance with the vaccine mandate by mid-October 2021. And I say that he uh, betrayed this because as we look at this, there was never any... <clears throat> There was never any uh, interest in looking at real and uh, considering religious <clears throat> concerns, religious exemption concerns, as required, really, under the Constitution. And, of course, the whole thing was based on a fraud. We know that, right? Uh, we know that the FDA said, we're authorizing Cormenati. They said, well, it's the same thing as a Pfizer-BioNTech, but it's legally distinct. Legally distinct. Well, if it's legally distinct, then you can't legally require it. Because if it's legally distinct, then uh, the Pfizer BioNTech has its emergency use authorization, but you can't force an emergency use authorization vaccine on anybody, uh, not even in the military. And uh, you cannot, <clears throat> um, the whole thing was based on a lie. The whole thing was based on trampling our individual liberties, especially religious liberties. 
So it specifically demanded that special operations designated personnel, SEAL and uh, SWCC, uh, take the experimental Trump shots. It's interesting, you know, all the people who were talking about this and cheering it won't call it the Trump shots. Trump wants it. He wants the credit. Give it to him, please. The demand ran into headwinds of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which issued an injunction halting it as part of a still-continuing lawsuit brought by First Liberty Institute on behalf of the SEALs. The new filing stated that the Navy quietly rolled back Trident Order Number 12 May 22nd. This is several months ago, following the injunction against it. But it's not immediately clear whether the Navy replaced the order with any other document or any other reasoning behind the termination. The Navy spokesperson told Fox News the Navy does not comment on ongoing litigation. Uh, but again, the, um, the original group of Navy SEALs that is being defended by uh, <clears throat> Liberty, um, looking at the uh, name of the place here, uh, so I can't find it right now. It's the, uh, the people who are defending them, uh, the Organization of Lawyers. They've now extended this to make it a class action lawsuit for all Navy service members. And they have, um, you know, made that, that filing available just this week. That's how we're now finding out about it, even though they did it back in May. Uh, as you look at um, uh, other information, this is also coming from the Navy. Uh, this is LifeSite News. It's a Catholic Navy officer. LifeSite News is a Catholic site. So he'd gone on several times with interviews with him talking about his fight for religious exemptions. He's now been vindicated after a memo suggests that the military was denying vaccine mandate exemptions in mass, uh, not even considering them. In a June 2nd memo made public uh, this week, so we just had a May memo that was made public this week, and now a June memo made public this week, Pentagon Acting Inspector General Sean O'Donnell told U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, uh, Mr. Raytheon, uh, that he was concerned about military officials' potential non-compliance with regulatory and legal standards for handling religious exemption requests. Now, this is something that could affect all branches of the service. This is coming from the Inspector General of the Pentagon. Uh, O'Donnell said officials may have failed to comport with the DOD's standards for reviewing and documenting the denial of religious accommodation requests by sending out hundreds of stock denials rather than individualized messages to each service member who requested an exemption. Uh, so I said, uh, you know, you, you've got people who have sincere uh, exemptions, and you're not even taking a look at this. And, of course, we know that. A lot of people have complained about this. Just getting a form letter being sent out. MFS Investment Management. Our active 360 approach to fixed income goes beyond analyzing financials. We combine active security selection and risk management, striving to make the most of complex bond markets. MFS.com slash active 360. Next up for auction is lot 413, a hickory smoked peppered turkey breast by Kretschmar. A fine example of craftsmanship, made from the leanest, most tender cuts, hand-trimmed with care from whole turkey breasts. Of course, smoked to perfection over natural hardwood, and not a single filler or artificial ingredient. Now, do I have any bitters? Taste the Kretschmar life. And so now the Inspector General of the Pentagon is saying that specifically to the Navy because of this guy's case, but I think it'll have implications for everyone. 
He said, we found a trend of generalized assessments rather than the individualized assessment required by federal law and the Department of Defense and by military service policies, said the memo from the Pentagon Inspector General. Uh, O'Donnell said the, quote, volume and the rate at which the religious accommodation requests were denied was concerning, pointing out that a generous estimate would suggest that each request would likely have gotten no more than a 12-minute review. He said such a review period seems insufficient to process each request in an individualized manner and still perform the duties required of their positions. So um, that's a, another positive there. Um, Green, the guy who is at the center of that, uh, that uh, has done interviews in the past with uh, LifeSite News, they describe him as a traditional Catholic husband, father of seven. And in previous interviews, he said the standard operating procedure essentially proved that the Navy was, quote, adjudicating religious accommodations in an unlawful manner, unquote. He says this is an interesting vindication from the perspective that they now admit that they knew but it's not surprising to us, he said, pointing out that the federal judge used the evidence he provided to issue a preliminary injunction against the Navy, which was later taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court and U.S. Navy SEALs versus Biden. Again, that's kind of tied into that as well. He said, what is really mind-blowing is that the Navy was, is still denying and throwing out these cases and covering up the unlawfulness as, way, as late as August the 5th when I got the denial of the complaint that I had filed back in December. They sat on it for seven months. And then in August, they said, eh, there's no evidence that you have a sincere religious concern about this. Green, who received his commission in the Navy in 2007 after his graduation from the Naval Academy, told LifeSite that he's personally bucked the COVID jab mandate because of his sincerely held religious beliefs, which he shares with his wife and their seven children. And it's not just... You know, as we expand this from the SEALs to, you know, everybody now in the Navy is part of this, but it's everybody in the military, of course, Republicans. You've got three Republican congressmen who are, who, and they've had, uh, they, they put together a letter, but they've had a lot of Republican congressmen uh, sign this, a letter to uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, uh, Mr. Raytheon. I mean, he, he was at Raytheon for so long after he retired from the military that they had to overrule the rules saying that if you're gone from the military for a certain amount of time, uh, you can't be brought back in. They overruled all that to put this shill in because he would do exactly what they wanted. He was for hire. Anyway, uh, the Republican lawmakers are Mike Johnson from Louisiana, Chip Roy, Texas, Thomas Massey from Kentucky, demanding answers about the effect of the vaccine mandate on military readiness and a letter to the Secretary of Defense. They said the Biden administration's military vaccine mandate is clearly harming military readiness by creating unnecessary recruiting and retention shortfalls. Um, and now after the Pentagon has tried and failed to make up the difference by reducing recruitment standards, over 100,000 active service members who taxpayers paid to train faced discharge during the worst recruiting year in our military's history. If 75,000 soldiers are discharged, it begs the question whether the Army will be able to replace them, said the letter. At the very end of the fiscal year, the Army has only met 52% of its fiscal year 22 recruiting goal. 
How will it recruit another 75,000 troops beyond its annual target to account for vaccine-related discharges? Because not only are they not able to recruit people, but they point out in their analysis, maybe one of the reasons that you can't recruit people is because of what you're doing with the vaccines, but you're going to kick out the people that are already trained. And uh, even beyond that, it's an ideological purge. They don't want people that have uh, certain religious beliefs, do they? That's what uh, Chip Roy called it, a de facto ideological purge. He said, Joe Biden's message to young, healthy American patriots is clear. Unless you submit to taking a politicized, ineffective COVID-19 vaccine, call it the Trump shot, Chip. <laughs> uh, you cannot serve in the armed forces. Just call it the GCI, genetic code injection. Through their tyrannical military vaccine mandate, this administration is intentionally forcing out thousands of brave men and women who sacrificed to serve our country. This de facto ideological purge will continue to undermine our military readiness for years to come. Uh, Thomas Massey, in commenting on this, um, said um, the religious exemption process is a fraud. He says, if you tell service members that they can apply for religious exemptions while denying all requests, that's fraudulent. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely is. They never had any intention of looking at these things or granting them, right? Yeah, go ahead. You can do a religious. They should have had the courage to just come out and say what they're going to do. But, of course, uh, that would have been uh, more complicating for them. Uh, 44 Republican lawmakers have also joined in and signed that letter. So that's 47 of them. Um, according to the CDC, over 40% of men aged 18 to 24 years old have refused vaccination. In the South, uh, an area that is responsible for half of the nation's enlistments, that number is over 50% of uh, recruit, you know, people who would go into the military, 18 to 24 years old. And where they get half of their recruits typically in the South, Half of the people in that age group said, I'm not getting a vaccine. Uh, so they've just cut out half of the people and half of that's 25% right there. Uh, they argued that healthy young service members have zero chance of death from COVID, that uh, vaccinations have negligible or even negative efficacy against the Omicron strains. Well, we know all of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a total fraud, but it is a constitutional fraud. It's a legal fraud. Uh, it is a power play. Everything about this is fraudulent. I wish they would focus a little bit more on this uh, Corbinati thing and say, you know, why is it important for you to have the pretense of something that is approved and then still and then not make that available to anybody in the United States? You can't get something that is labeled Corbinati. Remember, we're talking about uh, the labeling stuff. Uh, Off-label things have uh, been used in the past, right? In other words, if you've got something that is uh, has, has been used for a very long time and it's been authorized by the FDA for a particular use, then if they use it for something different, uh, for example, if you've got something like uh, ivermectin that was uh, authorized uh, 60 years ago for some um, parasites and the FDA looked at the safety and they looked at the efficacy of it for that and it's been used for 60 years, you should be able to use ivermectin uh, off-label to see if it's going to work for uh, any other thing that people might be suffering from. But they threw a fit about that, didn't they? 
I mean, you've already got the safety profile. It's just, uh, we think that this might work for this. As a matter of fact, we got indications that it does work for this, but no, you're not going to be allowed to do that. That's a new thing. But at the same time, they were doing that and coming down with an iron fist on any off-label use of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, HCQ. At the same time they were doing that, they were saying, well, okay, this is legally not the same thing, but we're going to pretend that this is available when it's not available. And we're going to uh, say that we've given legal authorization of this thing that is not available here. But it's legally distinct, but we're going to use the law to coerce people into taking it. You know, for the, from the very beginning of this, as soon as they ran out that fraud, saying, well, we've now approved it, when they hadn't really approved anything at all, and they'd never tested it either. Yeah, they supposedly uh, went through a full approval process less than a year after they had uh, begun the testing stuff. That's something supposedly supposed to take about 10 years for good reason, because you don't expose people, you don't do challenge tests, and you want to know what the long-term health effects are. But of course, they ignore all the health effects. But as that was being, as they said, well, we've approved it now, you had hospitals that were telling people they couldn't get transplants. Remember that? Being denied getting a transplant. The first case of that that was reported uh, were two people, um, the, the lady who needed a kidney transplant and a lady that she happened to meet about a year earlier in a Bible study group. And um, she heard what she was going through and said, uh, well, I'll get tested. And she was compatible, so they were going to do a kidney transplant. And the hospital in Colorado said, no, you're not, unless you both get a jab. And they said, well, we're not going to get a jab because we have religious objections to that. And they said, well, then you're not going to get a kidney. We're going to let her die. And now we find out a year later that organ recipients are rejecting the transplant after the COVID vaccine. And so it's actually, and I, of course we knew that at the time, you know, we even had uh, a young child who had a heart issue and it was already well documented in the uh, VAERS database, the uh, increased risk of myocarditis and pericarditis and many other circulatory and heart issues with the jab. And here's a kid who's already gravely ill with a heart issue, needs a heart transplant. They said, no, you're not going to get it unless you get the jab that we know has a very high adverse effect uh, at risk with this. And uh, yet in this particular case, what is interesting about this study, and, and this was um, a study that looked at a cornea transplant. You know when I was talking about thimerosal earlier? You know, you can see the effect of that right away, turning your eye blood red. Uh, but, you know, if you inject it, um, well, you're not going to see what it's doing to your body. And so this is kind of an interesting thing because these were corneal transplants, which, again, are like an organ transplant. It's a tissue transplant. According to a new study published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine, acute corneal uh, allografts are being rejected by immunized patients who've undergone the procedure. Researchers say the underlying cause could be tied to a systemic inflammatory response excited by the Trump shots. Uh, this comes, um, I'm sorry, the cornea is the outermost layer of a person's eye. Corneal grafts are used to restore a damaged cornea. The surgery is known as one of the most successful organ transplant procedures with very low rejection rates. It restores vision, it reduces eye pain, it improves the appearance of the diseased cornea. 
So Japanese researchers compiled data from 23 studies, a total of 23 eyes from 21 patients who had undergone corneal graft procedures were addressed. Graft rejection occurred anywhere from one day to six weeks after vaccination in all patients, some of whom had undergone the procedure as far back as 20 years ago. All right, here's the two key things about this. It's a very successful surgery because it has such a low rate of tissue rejection. And yet, they had a very high rate in this study. Um, and uh, even more importantly, you had people who had had the operation and it had no rejection issues whatsoever for 20 years. And then within a day to six weeks after they get uh, the shot, now the tissue is rejected. Isn't that amazing? Uh, this is probably only scratching the surface. The study authors claimed that they could only find one other case of organ rejection in relation to other organs, but another study found dozens of cases in other organs. A study of the NIH posted in August, which searched through a host of medical journals, found 136 cases from 52 articles of solid organ rejection after the Trump shots. Uh, the NIH also has a study on a 23-year-old woman who underwent a kidney transplant who presented an acute rejection after the second dose of uh, Pfizer-BioNTech. She had undergone a deceased donor kidney transplant, uh, transplantation 18 months earlier, and the post-transplant period was uneventful. So here's another one. This is a, a kidney transplant. She had had the transplant 18 months earlier, no issues, for 18 months. Then she gets the jab, and the organ is rejected. Somebody who gets a corneal transplant, which has a very, very low rate of rejection and has no problem for 20 years, and they get the jab, and it's rejected. What does it take? What does it take to get people to wake up to this? What does it take to round up? And yet they're still hanging on to Trump like he's God Almighty. It absolutely disgusts me. We'll be right back. Stay with us. David Knight Show. All right, Tony is going to be joining us at the bottom of the hour in about 10 minutes. Um, we've had to uh, postpone the other interview that was going to be about the uh, Convention of States. Uh, so that's not going to happen um, at the top of the next hour. Uh, but um, 
Uh, I wanted to thank before I get into this, I've got a couple of stories about the Second Amendment I think you're going to find interesting here. Before I get into that, I want to thank the people who've left tips. Uh, Patrick S., thank you. That's very generous. I appreciate that. And Ralphie D's Nuts, thank you very much as well. Um, and he says thanks. Well, no, thank you to you. Uh, thank you for making this possible. Uh, we have uh, an interesting story out of Australia. Everybody loves to talk about how they've got uh, gun control in Australia. They still have some guns, but they make it very, very difficult. And so very few people have it. They were very proud of the fact <clears throat> that in response to a mass shooting a few decades ago, uh, they rounded up guns, and you've seen the pictures of them rolling over guns with a, a steamroller and that type of thing, you know, for, for effect. Well, you know, sometimes uh, it's important to be able to protect yourself even from a kangaroo. Yeah, this is a story about kangaroos. It's about kangaroo courts, about kangaroo laws about death by kangaroo. A pet kangaroo in Australia killed an owner and stopped the paramedics from saving him. And, uh, you know, this, the, the point of this is that sometimes you need to be able to protect yourself. Uh, you never know if you're going to have a home invasion or somebody's going to attack you somewhere in the mall or whatever. Or it could be your pet kangaroo could be coming after you. <laughs> you know, that giant mouse is a... Uh, Saying the Looney Tunes, right? This is the first lethal kangaroo attack in more than 85 years. Uh, happened before this elderly man was born. He's 77 years old. Attacked and killed by a wild kangaroo that he was keeping as a pet. The man was found in serious condition by a family member who then called emergency services down to the property. Uh, when the paramedics eventually arrived, the kangaroo continued to pose an ongoing threat leaving them unable to tend to the man's injuries. So after waiting for, you know, it's probably a, a considerable distance, probably in a rural area, I'm assuming. So they wait a while for the paramedics to get there, then the paramedics can't get in. The man doesn't have a gun. Family doesn't have a gun. The par paramedics don't have a gun. They're helpless. So they call the police, and they wait, and they wait. And eventually the police get there. Uh, but by the time they get there, the man is dead. I guess he bled out, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, but again, you know, you, you don't always have the uh, police nearby. And just like when somebody uh, enters into your home or attacks you unexpectedly, uh, by the time the police can get there, uh, it's already over. And it was over for this man. Uh, the attending officers euthanized the kangaroo by firearm. Uh, that's one way to say they shot and killed him. <laughs> but they did it in a peaceful way, right? Uh, that'll be the last time that you see death by firearm uh, mentioned in Australia as euthanization, right? <laughs> Usually it's this heinous act, uh, murder most foul. Anyway, um, on the other side of this, uh, the other side of the world, you have a Texas teen uh, who was um, <clears throat> in Channel View, Texas, a 17-year-old, not legally allowed to have a gun, but was able to defend his family against a home invasion. Three armed men wearing masks broke into the home in Channel View, Texas. The 17-year-old grabbed a shotgun and shot at the men, hitting and killing two of them. Another 17-year-old, a 12-year-old, <clears throat> and an adult woman were also in the home during the Friday night incident, said the Harris County Sheriff. 
The two men were declared dead at the scene, and the third man fled in what authorities described as a dark-colored four-door sedan. Nobody else was injured. Now, this is, again, in the Houston area where, as I was just talking about it last week, uh, their crime has exploded there. But the point of this article on bearing arms was to point out that this is a teenager who would not be allowed normally to have a firearm in the home, 17 years old. Uh, it's impossible, uh, not, not, not allowed for anybody under 18 to possess a firearm in the home even. And yet he saved their lives. Meanwhile, the sheriff said the case is going to go to a grand jury. Uh, the person at bearing arms said, although I can't imagine how the kid could have anything to fear in most castle doctrine states, especially like Texas, the moment they force entry into an occupied home, the presumption is that they intend to harm those within. I think that'd be a pretty good assumption, assuming that the guys are armed themselves and wearing masks and forcing their way into the home. Uh, but again, there are those who would decry this teen's access to the shotgun just on general principle. They're not going to be talking out about this right now, but they'll continue to try and push the mandatory storage laws and regulations that bar providing access to anybody under the age of 18, if not 21. The problem with such policies is that they are a one-size-fits-all that doesn't take into account anything else except for the comfort level of people who generally live in urban environments and who don't like guns in the first place. They don't consider facts like the maturity of the kid, what level of training they might have had, how to use a firearm responsibly, where they live, and the average police response time. They don't think or care about any of that. That's right. You never know when you're going to be attacked by three armed men wearing masks or uh, by a pet kangaroo. Uh, so you need to be prepared. In Vegas, though, uh, you had a couple of people who could not believe what was happening to them with hotel security. Uh, so much so that they put up videos about it. And uh, Vegas Hotel Security will barge into your room, search your bags, and confiscate your guns. And this happened to a couple of individuals. One of them, it was at the Paris Hotel in Vegas. Uh, they barged into his room in the middle of the night to search for guns, which he didn't have. And um, he did a video about that. Uh, at the Venetian, uh, they, as the guest was leaving... They confiscated his bag and made it so difficult for him to get back that he missed his flight. He was leaving. Oh, you got a gun in your bag. We're going to confiscate that even though you're leaving the hotel. And uh, caused him to miss his flight. Absolutely amazing. All right, uh, Tony is uh, here and ready to come on. Uh, before we go to Tony, I just want to say uh, thank you to Joe Pappas. Thank you very much for the tip. Uh, he says, I... I need a David Knight coffee mug. Yes, we, we're having problems in terms of getting the uh, payment processing uh, through. And so that's really what the delay is. Uh, but we're working on it. We got, uh, you know, believe me, we, <laughs> we pay for these things. And we got them like you can see the coffee cup here. We would love to get them out to you. Uh, so. Next up for auction is lot 413, a hickory smoked peppered turkey breast by Kretschmar. A fine example of craftsmanship, made from the leanest, most tender cuts, hand-trimmed with care from whole turkey breasts. Of course, smoked to perfection over natural hardwood, and not a single filler or artificial ingredient. Now, do I have any bitters? 
taste the Kretschmar life. Minwax knows that when your client wants something specific, you want to give it to them. So stop by Lowe's and get some Minwax. Limitless premium colors? Minwax has them. Professional results? Guaranteed. So you can give clients beautiful wood floors, cabinets, trim. I could keep going, but I'm out of time. Keep on finishing with Minwax, America's number one selling brand of interior stains and clears. Available at Lowe's. We're just uh, trying to make that happen. Uh, we're going to connect with uh, Tony, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. Decoding the mainstream propaganda. It's the David Knight Show. And we've got uh, Tony Arterbin of wisewolf.gold. Uh, and of course, he's been kind enough to set up davidknight.gold, which uh, redirects to that. Um, and I sent this to Tony and I wanted to uh, uh, give this. Um, th- this was sent to me by, um, by mail. And, uh, so I want to go over this over the, over the uh, air. don't have a way to get back to the individual. Um, and I was going to do this last week and I forgot. And so I'm sorry about that when, when uh, you were on Tony, uh, this is from a listener Orlando. And he says, I have a question for you that I hope you can forward to Tony Ardburn regarding the storing of gold and silver in a private vault, places like Texas, precious metals and other vaults. He says, since the government can confiscate gold and silver by executive order, and I'm sure the purchase is tracked. Why not store the bulk in a private and insured vault? Any downsides or ideas that he might have? So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what, what what do you say, Tony? Well, first of all, David, uh, always an honor to be here. Honor to uh, sponsor this magnificent program. Well, well to you. that question, um, I'll, I'll look to the to the wealthy. The wealthy don't keep their gold and silver at home. Most of it, anyway. I was reading an article up on Kitco. Um, Robert Kiyosaki was interviewed. He's got a new book out called The Capitalist Manifesto. And he's one of the people that I look to uh, as I was learning about precious metals for, you know, the history. And why, why, what does he do with his precious metals? And, of course, he stores them all around the world. Um, I was looking at so Palantir, bought $50 million of actual gold bullion, not contracts like a lot of people do. They'll buy GLD. Really? They, uh, they bought 50, yes, they bought 50 million in gold bullion and stored it in an undisclosed location, I think in the Northeast. Wow. So this is something that's pretty common amongst the, the, the ultra wealthy. They store their gold in private vaults. Yes, the government can do pretty much what well, we've seen through executive order. They'll, they'll just do something illegal. They'll, they can take your gold. It's harder to do it when you're, you're talking about private companies that are storing your metals. And so this is something you have to do when you have a gold and silver IRA. You can't keep your gold and silver with you. It's just like you can't cash out an IRA and still have one. So that you, you store your precious metals in a, in a vault. Uh, and there's vaults all over the country. There's some, there's some really good pricing on vaults, as a matter of fact. So I, I really think that's, a, that's an option. Uh, you always want to have a little bit on hand. But if you've got a significant amount, I, you do need to look into having a vault, in my opinion. 
And that's just something you can rent throughout the year. It's usually about uh, an IRA is about $200 a year, David. And a, I mean, anything larger than a hundred thousand, you start ticking up the amount of rent that you're going to pay annually, but it can go up to about $600. Wow. Okay. And, and so, um, if you just were to, it's not part of an IRA, which you were required to do it, but if you put it in a, a private vault, um, uh, that, that is a, a way to make sure that, uh, <laughs> you don't make yourself a target and, um, uh, but of course, I, I guess they could always uh, seize it out of the private vaults. Uh, I, I guess that was his, uh, his, his issue. And I guess if it's insured, uh, the insurance company would be on the hook if the government decided they were going to go on and, uh, and seize it, or maybe, uh, they have a writer in there where they would say, you know, like typically do, uh, if it's an act of war or something like that, you know, all bets are right. off, you know? So I would imagine, uh, they've, they probably looked at that and kind of covered that. So the insurance part of that would probably not um, insure you against somebody like FDR or maybe even Joe Biden. Uh, <laughs> but, right. And, you know, and, and the thing is it's insured and it's a private company. If you're, if you're storing in a vault, these aren't banks, you know, there, you can do something like uh, insourcing. <laughs> you can do a bail in. We've seen in other countries like Greece where they'll take their money out of the account. And of course the government can do that. We've seen that with people like gun manufacturers and gun dealers. They can just come and take your accounts, uh, precious metals dealers too. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, you know, it, it can happen, it can be seized, but you're talking about going through layers of protection there. And that, again, that's where the, the wealthy keep their gold and silver in private vaults. You want get to a, get a vault with a good reputation. And I know a few people that I trust. I use Dylan Gage in Dallas uh, for my storage, um, anything outside of my shop. And I, I store a couple of things for, for some customers short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes your dealer will do that for you. But you need to have a plan. Uh, if it's not going to be stored at your home, you know, have a have a reputable vault stored for you. Okay. All right. Yeah. That I, I think it's kind of interesting. I didn't know that about Palantir that they'd bought a great deal of gold bun, uh, bullion, and uh, and or, and we're setting that up because uh, Palantir has always been on my radar. I mean, they've uh, uh, openly talking about how they're doing geospatial intelligence and data mining of everybody doing it for the military, doing it for uh, the police, but especially their connections to the uh, surveillance state. And so we, if you've got some kind of a, a deep state organization like this with a lot of CIA affiliations created with uh, uh, money from the CIA's uh, Incutel venture capital firm, uh, Peter Thiel, I've got an article uh, talking about uh, uh, what he's been saying uh, lately. Uh, Peter Thiel, uh, one of the you know movers and shakers behind that. If these guys are concerned that and they want to have physical gold, and they're storing it, that says a great deal in favor of it. I think. Well, I think so too. And you know, we talk a lot about uh, you know myself and Kenzie on the Wise Wolf Gold and Crypto Show. We've talked about how governments are breaking records, you know, and central banks breaking records buying gold. It's happening. It's just again the the. The movement away from fiat currency into stable assets is happening. The ultra wealthy are doing it. It's just not in the mainstream. And you're seeing like gold and silver taking a massive hit right now because of psychological perception of what the rate hike's going to do, the so-called strong dollar. I have I have no idea on investment advice. I don't give investment advice. And you know, this article with Kiyosaki in it today was talking about it. I buy gold and silver for insurance, not investments. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the next step's going to be. I, I look at some of this data, David, and I'm thinking. Some of these people, I, I guess I just have to ask, is there going to be an economy in five years? I mean, I really don't know. I mean, the way it's headed, we, we've adopted every single plank of the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. I've talked about when I hosted your show. 
a couple of years ago. I read off a 1999 article by the Mises Institute. We've adopted every single plank of the Communist Manifesto. So it's hard to understand what people are seeing when they're like, oh, we don't need gold. We don't need silver. We don't need these uh, haven assets. Uh, we've got the economy. It's red hot right now. You'll get some Jim Cramer person telling you that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> I don't believe that. I'm sorry. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be right, but I do not believe that things are going to be smooth sailing, especially geopolitically. So again, I, uh, insurance against the fake system. I only want to deal in real things. And so um, I, I, as far as storing and all the th stuff that's going with that, there's always risk. Yeah, there's always risk. There's there's no zero risk asset anywhere. That's right. Uh, but there are some great companies that will do some storage. I just wanted to say that. Yeah, you just have to try to minimize risk. Uh, and we know what um, what is on the horizon. I've talked about it many times. I've got another executive order from Biden that came out uh, this week about genetic modification and all the different things that he wants to do with that. And it's another one of these things, just like he did with the executive order uh, for all these. Uh, uh, executive agencies, all the alphabet agencies that are under the president, for all them to come up with a plan for what they're going to do about CBDC. And when you look at these things, they have, especially this one that came out this week, it was 17 pages long, and it's got dates for you know different, in, in two years, I want this, in six months, I want this, in 180 days, I want this, that type of thing. And um, for all these different agencies, uh, when you come up with a plan and you assign a date to it, uh, that's a real serious thing. And that's why I've said, you know, once they, they talked nebulously about this general plan of what they want to do to all of us called Agenda 21, but then they got really specific about it in 2015 and uh, put a date on it by 2030. And now they're taking these subsections of it, uh, genetic modification, the pharmaceutical industry, and the CBDC, and they're putting uh, uh, these, these dates on when they want to have the plans produced to them so they can roll this stuff together. They haven't told us the date that they're going to roll it out, but you can see the handwriting on the wall if they've got these very specific steps with time frames assigned to them already. Well, right. A, a goal not written down is just a wish. That's right. If you if you look at uh, any of the people that talked about achieving what you want to achieve, you write it down. You put it in writing. This is what they do. They've told us it's coming. And then again, this is if you're paying attention, this is a blessing because you have time to prepare. Yeah. It doesn't mean that ultimately they're going to be successful because uh, you know you were talking earlier. These people are not God Almighty. I mean, That's they right. can't they they can't plan for every variable and every contingency. That's right. So I mean, I, I just I just think people. Looking at this, thinking that's inevitable, yes, they will push it. I think they will launch the central bank digital currency, um, and I think that uh, we'll have time to resist it. But Bitcoin Magazine put out an article, um, and I tried to be, <laughs> I tried to be open to it. They were saying the CBDC. There's reasons why the CBDC could help spark, you know, a, a counter revolution in cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's right. that's I've got that article. It's a great article. I'm going to talk about that coming up. It, it, it really is because, as they pointed out, it's going to have to roll out in stages. And, and they said, nobody's going to like this. You know, <laughs> there's, there's no, no upside at all to the CBDC. And so they know that it's going to uh, do a big blowback on it. And as he's pointing out, you know, it could help a lot with, uh, with Bitcoin because they're going to have to start to uh, do certain things that are going to make um, – uh, the, the technical aspects of using crypto, it's going to take some of the mystery and, and, um, uh, out of it and uh, people get more familiar with it. And, uh, then they'll start looking for some alternatives to CBDC. 
I just hope that whatever entity is rolling it out, uh, the central bank planners or whatever, I hope that they hire the the first, right? They hire all these new wokey type people where <laughs> you, have, you have to find somebody that fits some new mold of whatever is the recent thing. And that that's what I'm really applauding that lately because you hire these people, then you just see like the the, the energy uh, was the, the energy department uh, had the nuclear waste disposal guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like a dog. I mean, I'm like, I actually kind of fine with just, you know, just the worst people. Maybe you can't get anything done. And I think, uh, you know, when the Fed said that lawmakers are approaching them saying, you've got to do something, you've got to get this central bank digital currency out. I'm like, this, this didn't happen. Who is, yeah. what are you talking about? So we can be competitive with China. This is something that you'll hear in the mainstream financial networks. You and I know what they want it for, mm-hmm. which is total control. It's, it's the end game system. But again, it doesn't mean that it, it's going to be successful. They always like to portray it as, you know, we've got a CBDC gap. You know, we, we, we've got a, uh, a gain of function bioweapon gap. We, we got to up the uh, ante and all this stuff. It's always, you know, if we don't do it, they're going to do it. And, and they are doing it and they're ahead of us. So I know this is really horrible and nobody really wants this, but we have to do it in order to keep up with them. And, and that's the way they're going to push all of this stuff. Uh, I got kicked off of... Uh, I got one, one strike. Uh, the one time that they took me off of the three-strike process, the rest of the times they never gave me any explanation. But on YouTube, when they took me off of three strikes, one of them was uh, the beginning of 2021, where I said uh, 2020 was the year the world became China. Everybody followed that blueprint. And, uh, you know, that, that is the, the scam that they run all the time, that there's, there's uh, no time, you got to do this right away, and uh, you can't stop and think about it. Uh, so what else is on your, your mind with uh, gold and silver, Tony? What else is new? Well, we've got a new program, and I'm working out, still working out some kinks with it. We, la- we launched it a, f- a couple of days ago. It's called Wolfpack.gold, and if you go to davidknight.gold, folks, you'll see a tab up there that says Join Wolfpack. Now, what Wolfpack is, it's a membership program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a lot of people, and well, not maybe not lately, uh, dropping off products, selling me products direct, and I thought, I would, I'd like to share this with people that, you know, wanted to start out, it starts out with $50 on the Lone Wolf um, membership program. And you can just say, just set it and forget it. I can buy you uh, gold and silver products, drop ship them directly to your home uh, every month. And then you get access to uh, our, our shopping cart, which I'll have, uh, I usually bring, I don't have any items this week. We've been really slow on buying items, but I usually will show, uh, you know, members uh, what is uh, available? What are some good deals in our shopping cart? You get an exclusive podcast. You get an exclusive newsletter. And uh, any anybody who joins through you is going to be your member. So you'll get a that'll be part of your commission. So anybody who joins through davidknight.gold and you go check out Wolfpack, you can set just set it and forget it, and we'll we'll uh, send you your your precious metals direct. You can choose uh, gold, silver, or a mix. Um, and even if you do the fifty dollars a month and uh, do the lone wolf package. Uh, if you say, Hey, Tony, I want gold. Uh, that's fine. I'll wait till you're about two or three months in and I'll start sending you gram bars. We'll just get you a uh, fractional gold. Um, that's something that we're working on right now. And I think, I think wolf is going to make a, a huge difference in getting people quality metals at a, at a good price. And they don't have to think, well, I got, I got to save up to get a whole ounce of gold or save up for $2,000. You don't have to do that. That's you great. Back and sign up. That's great. Kind of like a, a regular savings program uh, that yes, you can sir. set aside. That that's a great idea. As a matter of fact, uh, when Orlando sent this to me, the guy had the uh, question about uh, storing gold and silver in vaults. He also said uh, on your main page you got to, and we need to do this. Uh, I thought we had a link there to um, 
uh, David Knight type gold, but uh, evidently we don't. He says, I-, I couldn't find the site on a regular censored search, uh, so <laughs> had to rewatch the broadcast to get the link. So we'll make sure that we put that there and we have it on uh, the davidknightshow.com. I put it on uh, the bottom of all the uh, podcasts and and I thought we had it on our site, but that was an oversight. So we'll get that in. Well, that's a great new program. Uh, and uh, that's one of the things that I, I like about Tony is that he's always uh, looking at uh, different ways to uh, roll this out and to help people. So that that's a, and I appreciate your support of this program, Tony. I really do. Thank you very oh, much. A- absolute honor. And uh, we're going to keep this program on the air. And I tell you what, the first person who signed up for Wolfpack was a David Knight listener. I just checked it. Uh, <laughs> we had a couple, you know, it's funny. You talk about, you know, you've been banned off PayPal. What an awful organization. I had to put PayPal up there, uh, but I think they denied like the first three people trying to sign up, even though I'm, I'm legit. Everything's fine. Wow. I don't trust them at all. Yeah. Uh, so we had, we had some problems with uh, one merchant account dropped me already. I had to go get another one. And I'm thinking, well, I, I've got two here at the office, but it's the monthly deal, something with that and precious metals. So uh, we're working it out right now and uh, we'll definitely we'll have more news next week on how it's going. Well, they definitely are trying to make things difficult for people financially. They're going after the gun uh, places, as I, I talked about earlier this week. Uh, you know, and now they're going to, it's part of the operation choke point. They're just trying to broaden it out, uh, label, uh, gun retailers as, um, specifically so they can uh, start to create a registry of that. Uh, it's going to be kind of interesting to see what happens, but I think that's going to be yet another, uh, thing as they start to do that as, as they start to weaponize the financial system, that's going to be another thing that's going to drive people into crypto. It's going to drive them into gold and silver and other things like that. And uh, so, you know, we're going to have to try to get up to speed because it's going to be coming at us. Once they drop the hammer, it's, it's going to be uh, uh, done very rapidly. Right now, we know that's what they're preparing for. We're seeing all these different things rolling out, just like the uh, targeting of gun retailers. Uh, they're going to be targeting a lot of different things. So I uh, appreciate it, Tony. It's always great talking to you. And, appreciate uh, you. Uh, so it's uh, Tony Arderman at wisewolf.gold, and you can find links to him at davidknight.gold. Thank you very much, Tony. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, actually, we do have um, our our guest who's going to be Smashing Pumpkins, The Metro, and Q101. Three Chicago icons come together for one incredible show. Wow, this is crazy. Here we are in Chicago. Most of these songs that we play are, you know, they were written right here. Q101 presents An Evening with the Smashing Pumpkins, a free show at the legendary Chicago venue, The Metro. And the only way to get in is to win on Q101. Every day, 6 a.m. until midnight, it's a Smashing Pumpkins takeover. With your chance to win a pair of tickets every 30 minutes, every hour, every day, until the day of the show. The Smashing Pumpkins takeover. Sponsored by Coors Light, made to chill. This is William Patrick Corey of the Smashing Pumpkins. This is Jimmy Chamberlain from the Smashing Pumpkins, and you're listening to Chicago's Alternative Q101. In life, everything has its cost. From 40 weeks working double shift to six months without going to the movies or eating out. At Magnum Insurance, we know how much it has cost you to realize your dreams. That's why we help you protect them with the best coverage, the best service, and the best price on insurance policies. Schedule your free consultation, and one of our certified agents will design the perfect coverage to meet your needs. Get a quote today at magnuminsurance.com. Talking about Constitutional Convention is going to be coming up at the top of the hour in about 15 minutes. So stay with us. We'll be back.
using free speech to free minds. It's the David Knight Show. Again, the other aspect of uh, gold and silver is as an insurance policy against runaway inflation. And uh, as we're looking at interest rates, we saw inflation up quite a bit more than anybody had, uh, pretty much anybody had predicted this last week. And uh, so then they immediately started talking about, well, how high are they going to hike the Fed rate? Uh, so then they started talking about putting it up at a 100 basis point increase, which is a full 1% jump in the base rate. Uh, that would be the biggest hike in 40 years. And uh, if they don't do that, uh, the 75 basis points is uh, definitely coming. So it's going to be a big hike one way or the other. It's just, is it going to be uh, the biggest one in 40 years or just a really big one? Uh, but it's not going to be enough to stop inflation. We know that. I mean, as, as uh, Gerald Slinty has pointed out many times, uh, you're going to have to get a couple points above what the inflation rate is. And if the inflation rate is running at more than 8%, um, we're not looking, we're not anywhere close, even with these uh, increases, we're not anywhere close to getting up to uh, 10 points or, or more. And that's not even the real inflation rate. That's the one that they manipulate. Uh, so economists at a brokerage house are predicting a full percentage point increase in the Fed's benchmark short-term rate. They said, we continue to believe the markets underappreciate just how entrenched U.S. inflation has become. And the magnitude of response that will be likely required from the Fed to dislodge it. They want, they're not going to be able to raise them high enough to stop inflation, but they can raise them high enough to cause severe economic harm and a severe uh, recession. The Fed could crash the housing market. Uh, and uh, if they don't do it with this, uh, they will keep trying until they actually do. Uh, so far, sales of houses are slipping while prices are holding steady. The Fed could risk crashing the housing market. Uh, housing costs rose 0.7% in August. They're up 6.2% year over year, the largest increase since 1991. Uh, they said uh, home sales declined in July for the sixth month in a row. Housing starts, a measure of new home construction, also plunged that month as a cost of building supplies remained high and prospective buyers were priced out of the market because they could not qualify. A housing slowdown has preceded nine out of the past 12 recessions. Uh, so what they're saying is besides that, you need to prepare for a heating bill hit. Uh, but um, the article that Tony was talking about earlier uh, from Bitcoin magazine saying the only potential benefit of a central bank digital currency is Adoption of Bitcoin. <laughs> and that's, central bank digital currencies are a dystopian implementation of money and will only benefit society by encouraging people to adopt Bitcoin. And um, I forgot to ask Tony. I wanted to ask Tony about uh, the Ethereum fork. because he doesn't deal with Ethereum, but he also does have uh, Bitcoin there that you can uh, buy through him. Um, does Bitcoin, gold, and silver, but uh, that's the only crypto that he's involved with. And, um, yesterday, uh, and we didn't see any news about it. So I guess everything went okay. They changed significantly the way they process transactions on Ethereum. Uh, they went from proof of stake, a uh, proof of uh, work, which is where you, you mine the coin to a proof of stake. And, um, as I pointed out, uh, last couple of days, they're very willing to modify how their currency works. 
and they are very closely tied in with the World Economic Forum, with Davos. So many people have said perhaps that will be the thing on which they rapidly piggyback a central bank digital currency. Bitcoin, on the other hand, has been set, set pretty much in, in concrete. There's been some changes that are minor, but for the most part, it is not completely reinventing itself as Ethereum has shown they're willing to do. Uh, the U.S. will start implementing CBDCs in the near future. We know that. We just don't know the time that's going to happen, but we do know that um, they're preparing the reports. The expected horrors of CBDCs are discussed at length by many Bitcoiners on Twitter and elsewhere, but very few that I have found have had anything good to say, uh, which I would like to change. <laughs> this is from Bitcoin Magazine. He says, uh, purchases of Bitcoin using CBDCs will very likely become impossible, or at least increasingly difficult, as no government wants money competing with the one that they control. And of course, when they have CBDCs, they will tell you what you can buy, how you can pay for it, when you can buy it, how much of it you can get. And then they'll look at everything that you, uh, they'll keep a track of it. Uh, as many people pointed out, for example, you know, you can only have so much gasoline because we're going to assign a carbon credit to that. I'm sorry you've had your allotment of gasoline for the month. You can't have any more. You're not going to drive any more, that type of thing. It's likely, he said, uh, that CBDCs are likely going to phase out the small amount of paper currency that still forms a part of the world economies today. That means that these countries will rely on technological education and word of mouth as to how this works. And so this guy writing for Bitcoin Magazine says this will cause a rise in technological know-how in these nations, meaning that it should be ever easier to onboard otherwise unwilling members of society to Bitcoin once they realize the false value that they're holding instead of hard money. He says, in other words, CBD will possibly be the perfect trigger to cause mass adoption and to spark a Bitcoin circular economy. At the end of the day, it does not matter how much one loves their government or how much you oppose its very existence. The sheer inconvenience of having, of having everyone's transactions moderated and limited based on arbitrary measures, such as carbon emission scores or nutritive value scores, is enough to turn everyone away from that monetary medium. Well, and I would say, hence, uh, I, that's why I believe this massive expansion of the IRS. Uh, nobody's going to want CBDC. So they're going to have to strong arm you into it. And they're going to have to, uh, you know, have an army of people to do it. And that's literally what uh, Biden is doing. An army of auditors. Uh, forget whether or not they've got, you know, the issues about whether or not they're armed or whether or not they have guns. A large, you know, there's going to be quite a few of them that are going to have guns, that already do have guns. Uh, but you can rob people more effectively with a pen or with a computer terminal than you can with guns. And so uh, that's what you should really be concerned about. CBDC implementation and adoption will likely not be an overnight change. The time that it would probably take for Bitcoin adoption to occur would be heavily dependent on which terrifying features the particular CBDCs implement. These CBDCs will cause a great deal of pain and suffering over the time in which they're actively used. And that pain will bring, and the practices that they will implement uh, are not anything new, but it'll be a furtherance of what they're doing. They're going to be able to multiply this with their technology. Uh, there's many other steps that Bitcoin will need to take to allow simplistic adoption for the greater world population. 
More platforms, more wallets will be needed to begin offering lightning payments and the use of SMS uh, text messaging transactions, such as a recent development in South Africa. The outlook is somewhat hopeful on the front of CBDCs and their ability to push more people out of fiat and into Bitcoin. And so um, when we uh, look at uh, this, a lot of people are now talking about the coming CBDC. And um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back. But we do have our guest uh, ready now, and I do want to go to him and talk about what's going on with the uh, Convention of States, as some of the people are talking about it, or the Constitutional Conventions. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the history of this, uh, who is supporting it and why, and especially since he's covered this uh, extensively for New American, um, what is the current status uh, because this is something that uh, pe- that different states are opting into on a one to one uh, one by one basis. So we want to talk about that, how we can oppose it, all these different aspects. Because I think, uh, as well as our guest, uh, I think that um, uh, this is a uh, very dangerous thing. It's another one of these uh, rewrites uh, that uh, can really open uh, a giant. How are businesses across the U.S. turning idle vehicles into thousands of dollars in revenue each month? With Coop by Ryder. Coop is the leading commercial vehicle sharing platform where you can start a new revenue stream by renting out idle trucks, tractors, or trailers. Want to know how much your vehicles could make? Calculate your potential earnings with our revenue calculator. Visit coop.com slash audio. That's C-O-O-P dot com slash audio. You spend the first hour of your vacation at the luggage carousel thinking there's nowhere to go but up. But there is a place to go but up. Because when you open your suitcase, you find it filled with dolls. Dolls like the ones in that movie that scared you so much you wet your girlfriend's bed. Ah, Marissa, the one that got away. You return the bag to the airport with relief. It lasts until you get back to your room, where a fallen doll waits to greet you. Don't let a suitcase full of dolls ruin your vacation. Go on a real vacation. GoRVing.com. Pandora's box. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Christian Gomez from The New American. Stay with us. Deceit. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. You're listening to The David Knight Show. And joining us now is Christian Gomez. He writes for The New American. He had a, an article. I, I covered this a, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, I, I cover the Constitution of States on a regular basis. Uh, but um, uh, he was talking about, and this update to it, uh, how this is being, uh, how the John Birch Society is being uh, represented uh, by the Council of States, some of the people who are the Convention of States, uh, the people who are pushing this constitutional convention. I think it's something that we all need to be aware of, and I think that uh, New America and John Birch Society have uh, done a better job than anybody in terms of nailing this. This is something that's been going on for quite some time, uh, but it's a very dangerous idea, I think. So, 
Uh, joining us now is Christian Gomez. Thank you for joining us, Christian. Well, thank you for having me on today, uh, uh, David. Thank you. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of the history of the Constitutional Convention. We've had one of them in the past, right? Uh, and and that's kind of insightful as to what might happen with this one. Uh, does that cause you a little bit of concern as to what we saw with the original Constitutional Convention and these other calls for it? Absolutely. So as, as we all know from, from history, there was the first Constitutional Convention, the Federal Convention of 1787, in the state of um, in, in Pennsylvania, specifically in Philadelphia, where the convention delegates from 12 of the 13 states met, because Rhode Island didn't want to participate. They wanted to keep the Articles of Confederation. But nevertheless, all of the state commissions and the resolution passed by Congress at the time reminded all of the delegates that would be assembled there at that convention that they were going there for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. Uh, to make amendments to the Articles of Confederation to improve it. And when they were there, uh, many of the delegates admitted that they didn't have the authority to do more than just make amendments, but they did so, unfortunately. Well, I guess not unfortunately. It was fortunately because we got a better document. We got the U.S. Constitution. But they didn't have the proper legal authority going in in terms of uh, what they were told to do by their sending states and by uh, the Confederation Congress or Congress Assembled, as it used to be called. So uh, they created a new constitution, and when they ratified that constitution, the one we have, which is a which is a better document, of course, they ratified it using Article Seven of the U.S. Constitution. Article Seven states that uh, that conventions of nine of the states will be sufficient to ratify the U.S. Constitution, but under the Articles of Confederation, which was still the law of the land, so to speak. Article Thirteen of the Articles of Confederation specifically stipulated that any alterations had to be made by the Congress assembled and then agreed to by the legislatures, not conventions, by the legislatures of all of the then 13 states. And the Constitution was ratified, um, completely uh, ratified, before the ratifications from, from even North Carolina and Rhode Island. In fact, uh, the, the first Congress under the Constitution and George Washington's inauguration occurred before Rhode Island uh, had uh, ratified the U.S. Constitution. So. The learning from history, the fear is if we have a new convention today, whether you call it a convention of states, which I think is an erroneous name, or a constitutional convention or amendments convention, whatever you want to call it, the fear is that they, that the current delegates would hearken to the, the idea of the sovereign will of the people to say, hey, you know, our constitution needs more than just amendments to fix it. We have all these problems with the Electoral College and balance, budget, whatever excuses that they'll, they'll use, uh, abortion, whatever issue side they want to take on that, and say, oh, we just need a whole new constitution and, mm -hmm. and produce a new constitution. And rather than using three-fourths of the states to ratify it, as Article 5 stipulates, they'll appeal to, in the name of democracy, perhaps say, oh, let's have a national referendum to ratify the constitution. In fact, most of the world's modern constitutions are ratified through national referendums. And considering the results of the 2020 election, I think many of us would pause at the thought <laughs> of having a new constitution voted on in a national election. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the thing. When you, you look at, as you point out in that history, uh, once they started this convention, they just rewrote all the rules. Uh, they were not going to use the, uh, they were not going to modify the Articles of Confederation. They were not going to use the process uh, 
that uh, was required to modify it. They just uh, rewrote everything from the get-go. And so a lot of people will say, well, you know, this is – they mention having a constitutional convention to modify the constitution, but there's no definition really of how this works. Well, I think a pretty good definition of how this is going to work is to look at what was done to create that document by the people who said, Oh, you can have a constitutional convention. You don't like the one we just had. Uh, so I think maybe that, that is very insightful that, um, you know, you're just going to completely reset the table. You know, uh, Christian earlier in the program, I was playing a, uh, a long statement, that was being made by Joe Biden to uh, John Roberts as part of Roberts' confirmation hearing back in 2005. And in it, he was lecturing over and over again. You could just, you could see the contempt for the Constitution that Joe Biden had. You know, this horrible document. Look at all the wonderful things that we've done, and we did that because we ignored the Constitution. Look at all the horrible things in our history, and those were all there because the Constitution didn't didn't fix it. And so I want you to know, uh, Judge Roberts, that you're going to be faced with all kinds of things like implantations of microchips and all the rest of this stuff, and you're going to be ruling on that. And uh, I just want you to know that uh, you're not going to be held uh, uh, prisoner by this written document. You can just make this kind of stuff up. These are the kinds of people that are going to be writing a new constitution in a constitutional convention. They don't obey the constitution as it's written. And, and they take pride in the fact that uh, in their mind, it's a living document. So you can only imagine what these people would do in a constitutional convention where all the rules are gone, right? That's absolutely correct. Uh, if you look at uh, what uh, the late uh, Supreme Court Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, she said that when she made rulings, she didn't even look at the U.S. Constitution. She looked at the constitutions of South Africa or the constitution of the European uh, Union's, uh, you know, human rights document instead uh, for ruling. So we have justices on the left, especially who aren't, who are already looking at foreign documents to guide them in their principles. And look at Judge uh, Justice Roberts, um, Chief Justice Roberts, nominated by Republican George W. Bush, and he was the one who gave us, he was the one who somehow found the, uh, to, uh, the constitutionality of same-sex marriage yeah. uh, in there. Somehow he found it. I haven't found it, but uh, he did. So these people do have contempt for the U.S. Constitution, and they would be the ones, uh, or at least a type of people, maybe perhaps not the same people, because Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away, of course, but these would be the type of people, that kind of mindset that would go into the convention today. We don't have George Mason's and James Madison's and um, right. people like John Lansing, these other famous delegates that, that we know from history. Uh, we have people who think uh, the, that we have a democracy rather than a republic as our form of government. And these would be the people crafting, whether it's new amendments only or a brand new constitution. Either way, it's a scary thought for uh, what would emerge from such a convention. Yeah, you know, you go back, you mentioned uh, uh, Ginsburg saying, yeah, I don't even take a look at the Constitution. And you go back and look at Roe v. Wade 50 years ago, and they begin that decision by saying, you know, it really doesn't matter. We could look at all these different things. We could look at other countries' uh, laws, and we could look at their traditions and other cultures' traditions about uh, abortion. But, you know, we have to make this decision as a Supreme Court based on what the Constitution says. And, that, and then they ignored anything about the Constitution, and did uh, exactly what they said. We could look at all these other things. They looked at all those other factors, right? And and uh, came up with their decision about Roe v. Wade that was completely divorced from any constitutional considerations except for that 
uh, nod at the beginning, but now they don't even bother to do that. And, and so this um, convention of states, this constitutional convention, I like what Phyllis Schlafly called it a con-con because it is a big con job, but it's really coming from uh, conservatives. It's coming from Republicans. Uh, talk about who supports it and the justifications that they're putting out there, uh, Christian. Absolutely. So the, the biggest proponent right now we see for a convention, it, most of the loudest voices are coming from people who claim to be on the right conservative Republicans. Uh, so they claim, right? Mm -hmm. So people like Mark Meckler from the Convention of States Organization is one of the leading uh, voices. And if you, if you look at the 990 tax documents from that organization, uh, you see that they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in consulting fees and and speakers' fees and whatever other fees they're, they're using to, to, to label it uh, to various people who've come out to endorse the concept. Oh, surprise, surprise. Uh, people like the former U.S. Senator Jim DeMint, for example, even people like Mark Levin, who is a big proponent of the convention, wrote the book Liberty Amendments, and they've paid him uh, quite a, quite a uh, large share of, of money uh, to support the convention of states. And if you look at... Yeah, even writing a book. Mechler, talk, talk a little bit about Mark Levin's book. I'm not familiar. I know that he wrote a book uh, to, to push the idea, but talk a little bit, tell people a little bit about what is in Mark Levin's book. Just very succinct. Well, he's written several books, but very succinctly, the key book is uh, the Liberty Amendments, plural, right. uh, book that he wrote. It was several years ago, around the time the Convention of States was founded. So around that 2013 mark. Uh, anyway, in the book, he Mark Levin outlines uh, a number of amendments that on the surface may sound pretty conservative, but when you delve deeper into some of those amendments, they actually would expand the power of the federal government. Um, for example, uh, Mark Levin and also uh, many of the people who attended the so-called Convention of States mock simulated convention that they held, they proposed an amendment where um, the states could override a law from the federal government. Three-fifths of the states can, nullify, can uh, override or nullify a federal law. On the surface, that sounds good until you realize, wait a minute, Right now, under the present Constitution, under Article 6 and the 10th Amendment, we can one state alone can nullify an action from the federal government and say, no, that's unconstitutional. We're not going to abide by it. So that raises the threshold even higher. Uh, they also um, they also propose limitations on the on the power of the executive branch in terms of uh, executive orders. Well, the executive orders are unconstitutional to begin with. So if you <laughs> limit them, you're accepting that they exist in the first place. There shouldn't be any executive orders um, to begin with, at least none that have the power of, of law. Like if the president wants to make an executive order saying everyone from the Department of Energy wear a blue tie on Thursday, okay, whatever, who cares? But when it comes to making using it to enact legislation, like we've seen so many presidents on both sides uh, of the political spectrum do, uh, that's clearly unconstitutional. And uh, the amendments that they propose, perhaps unintentionally, maybe they're sloppily written, perhaps you could say at best, but at the end of the day, they expand the power of the federal government, and all you need. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we're talking about executive judge. orders, Christian. I, I, I begin my show every day with a countdown uh, from the mm -hmm. amount of time that we've had since Trump did that executive order, national state of emergency over COVID. Uh, it's now 915 days ago on a Friday the 13th, uh, March uh, 2020. And um, it, it's interesting that uh, this, um, uh, this uh, student loan uh, thing that's just been put out by Biden. If you stop and think about it, what he did was he created uh, a um, he created a new uh, entitlement program. Uh, everybody's entitled to get this money back if they meet a couple of different uh, criteria that he's put out there. He did it by executive order, 
And, and so he's created an entitlement program by executive order. And Christian, he, his uh, Department of Education based that on the ongoing COVID uh, national emergency executive order that Trump put in 915 days ago. So they are pyramiding and stacking these things. It's a bipartisan thing. It goes from administration to administration, and, um, and, and it, is a, uh, it is a horrific thing. But as you point out, it's unconstitutional. They should not be allowed to give themselves this, this type of power. Yes, I'm glad that you brought up uh, President Trump's uh, executive order making COVID-19 a uh, national emergency. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent example why we shouldn't have the balanced budget amendment of that. Many conservatives are, are hawking, so-called conservatives. I know it sounds like a good idea. But yes, the, I, we at the John Burgess side and the New American admit that Congress is a runaway Congress and they have runaway spending. That is true, but a balanced budget amendment is not the answer because all of the balanced budget amendment proposals that have ever been put out, they all they all include a provision for in the event of a national emergency, you don't have to abide by this. So essentially, by yeah. cre- by building in a loophole, you're constitutionalizing a method to never balance the budget. So uh, you know, Thomas Massey has described it this way. That if they had that balanced budget amendment in the Constitution, uh, the Congress day one, the first vote would be well, obviously, it would be the Speaker, but the second vote would be to declare a war on a foreign country or declare something to be a national emergency automatically. So then they wouldn't have to balance the budget. That would be the very um, first vote of consequence in, at the start of any Congress. That's right. Yeah, the emergency so it, doesn't it, even have to be real. You just declare it. And, and you know, we, we've got three dozen. Uh, executive orders and national emergencies that are ongoing now from uh, since this whole thing started back in 1976. So yeah, it's uh, uh, that, that would be no problem at all to get around it. The, the real, and, and that gets to the real issue of all this stuff, Christian. And that is the fact that uh, these people don't want to follow the law as it is. And, and they're the last people in the world that I would want to have write the constitution or rewrite the constitution. Uh, that that's the key thing. These people have no integrity, who have no intention of following the Constitution. Everything that they have done is a a, a device to uh, to get around uh, the Constitution, and they openly oppose it, as as Biden did uh, seventeen years ago in the in the Roberts confirmation hearing. Absolutely. Then, if you look at the folks who are, uh, it's not just Mark Meckler who's behind it, but. Uh, there's another organization not as well known called Let Us Vote for a BBA that wants a CONCON uh, as well. And uh, the two co-founders of that are a man named David Bidoff and David Walker. And um, David Walker, in particularly, he was uh, a member of the Trilateral Commission, uh, which was an organization which believes in one world government. And the Trilateral, he was also the comptroller for the U.S. and the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. But uh, David Walker is a strong proponent of a balanced budget amendment. He was a former member of the Trilateral Commission. Now, the Trilateral Commission was started back in 1970, in the, in the 1970s, about 1973, if I recall, if I recall correctly, uh, when David Rockefeller created it, when he, after he had read the book um, by Zbigniew Brzezinski, Between Two Ages, which calls for uniting the communist and non-communist world, and the, as the first step towards achieving that, having a trilateral alliance of the U.S., Western Europe, and Japan, and that that network has to be solidified. And the first step to do so was the creation of a trilateral commission. Well, that same book, Between Two Ages, on page 258 of the first edition, which is the hardcover edition, the author, Zbigniew Brzezinski, specifically calls for a national constitutional convention on page 258. He says a good time would have been 
either in 1976, because the book was written in 1970, or the 200th anniversary of America's founding, or 1989, the 200th anniversary of the Constitution's ratification. Obviously, those dates came and passed, and we didn't have a new constitutional convention then. Uh, you know, praise the Lord that we didn't. But however, what was happening just around the 1970s and 80s was the BBA movement, the movement for a constitutional convention for the specific purpose of having a balanced budget amendment under that excuse, that really took off. So while they didn't get the outright convention in 76 and 89, the movement for a balanced budget amendment became the, uh, uh, the impetus for calling a convention. And even today, convention of states, that's one of the main amendments that they're uh, peddling is, oh, we need to have a fiscal restraint amendment, balanced budget amendment. Uh, that's the number one amendment along with term limits that uh, that they're always pushing. And we can talk about term limits if you wanted to as to why that would be a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we talk about the balanced budget, I mean, you know, how are you going to balance it? Uh, are you going to cut spending in agencies or are you going to increase taxes? That's the other thing, right? They could use that as an excuse to uh, uh, raise uh, taxes to such a confiscatory level uh, that, uh, you know, uh, Biden's army of, uh, 90,000 auditors could take everything that you've got. I mean, you know, this is, uh, uh th that's, these are, are, are fake solutions, uh, to real problems when the reality is, is that if these people wanted to solve these things, the tools are there just, just like you mentioned about nullification, it only takes one state on a state by state basis. These states could, uh, nullify anything the government is doing because of the 10th amendment. Uh, it just, they don't have the willpower to do that. I've talked about that and mentioned it again today, Christian, when I was talking about uh, abortion. I said, you know, the appropriate response to Roe v. Wade was to assert the 10th Amendment and to stop it. Texas could have uh, saved lives over the last uh, 50 years, but they didn't do that. And they waited for the Supreme Court to tell them that the 10th Amendment says that uh, you can do that. And, and so they, they play this game partly because they don't have uh, the backbone to take these issues here. But let's talk a little bit about uh, term limits because that was one of the things, you know, they're, they're starting to talk again about having a uh, kind of a contract with America. Uh, you've got Kevin McCarthy saying, yeah, we're going to put, uh, I forget what they call it this time, but it's, uh, uh, he wants to come up with a plan that they're going to offer, you know, vote for Republicans to try to nationalize the election in the way that uh, Newt Gingrich did with his 10 point plan uh, contract uh, for America. And uh, one of those uh, things that he had on his contract, which, of course, they promptly forgot about, was the uh, term limits. As soon as they got elected, they, that was the first item they throw off as term limits. So, yeah, talk a little bit about term limits because that's, you know, these people that well, we just can't summon the will to, to do term limits. So we're going to have to uh, create something that has power over us that forces us to do a term limit. Talk a little bit about that. Well Yes, of course. Well, the, the idea with term limits is that we have all these bad rascals in Congress. So if we just term limit them out, all, automatically and magically, we'll get these fresh new constitutionalists will replace them. And that's that's kind of living in fantasy land. Because look at the example of, uh, let's just take Hillary Clinton. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message data rates may apply. Reply. Stop, stop, stop. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. 
We love it and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word ABOVE to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text ABOVE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word ABOVE to 323232. Text ABOVE to 323232. That bell means there's a new tire store in Valparaiso. Bell Tire. It also means you'll get up to $180 off a set of four tires at our grand opening sale. We want you to come get tires, but we don't want you to come back until you have to. That's why Bell Tire will give you up to $180 off four tires, plus more free lifetime tire services to help you get more out of your tires. $180 off four tires. What are you waiting for? Come get the lowest tire price, period, at Bell Tire. See storebelltire.com for details. Now open on Portersvale Boulevard. Former First Lady. She then becomes the, the senator for the state of New York, right? She runs for president, loses to Barack Obama, but Obama graciously nominates her as secretary of state. So she resigns as the senator from the state of New York. Now, she was elected in the 2000 election to the U.S. Senate in New York, and she was reelected by the voters of New York in 2006. When she left to become secretary of state, creates a vacancy in her seat. Uh, in, in what was her seat? Uh, so Christian Gillibrand becomes the new senator for New York. Now, at the free, at the New American, we have something called the Freedom Index, where we rate the co- the constitutional fidelity of members of Congress based on the top 10 votes they, they cast in the last uh, quarter of the Congress or half of the year, last six months. And if you look at the scores that we have for Christian Gillibrand and Hillary Clinton, because you, you can go back and look at former members of Congress, uh, Gillibrand's score is virtually the same as Chuck Schumer's score, which is a, a very dismal uh, low score. There's no difference. So even though Hillary Clinton term limited herself by leaving the U.S. Senate, she wasn't replaced by some constitutional uh, conservative Republican or uh, someone who res- respects, uh, you know, the constitutional limited government. She, she was replaced by the, the same voters got to reaffirm the choice of Gillibrand in uh, in the subsequent election. She's been reelected again several times. Uh, so if you term limit out an AOC a Nancy Pelosi, a, a Chuck Schumer, who replaces them? Yeah. Uh, they'll be replaced by a younger version of that same person, perhaps <laughs> even more to the left. And because they're younger, they'll likely be there even longer uh, than would uh, Schumer or someone who was already up there in age who might have been who might have left in the next election because they would just decide to resign. So now we're building up a new leftist globalist. The real solution is in term limits. That that that's that's just a bad band-aid that, that falls off right away. What we need is to educate the electorate, because without an educated electorate about the issues, they're going to keep electing um, bad individuals to represent them. Someone like AOC is elected in her district because the, the constituents that she represents, uh, the majority of them at least, do not understand or appreciate the Constitution. So they will vote for someone like her because it reflects their lack of understanding of the Constitution. Whereas in a congressional district like one represented by Thomas Massey, let's say, his constituents have a better grasp of the Constitution and they reelect someone who um, represents the values in our Constitution. That's right. Yeah, the, the whole fantasy behind that, as you're pointing out with Hillary Clinton, uh, the whole fantasy is, is that, well, we got somebody that's bad. Uh, we're going to get him out of government. And she doesn't get out of government. She keeps going from place to place, you know? Uh, she just changes where she is. And um, uh, so th- these people are not necessarily going to leave government. Uh, 
when they're there. And, um, and so that's another part of the aspect of that that I think is, that is difficult. Uh, where are we right now in this process? Uh, because um, it's, uh, I, I've seen some press reports from the people who are supporting it uh, talking about how they're adding states one by one and getting momentum, and we're seeing more talked about it all the time. Uh, where are they in this process? There's several different organizations behind different particular uh, worded applications. So the the uh, the, uh, the 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 position held by almost everyone in this um, in this in this fight for a con con, whether you're for it or against it, is that the application wording has to be the same. So um, when you look at an organization like Convention of States, they have 19 states that have passed their particular worded application. So they only have 19. But another organization on the left that wants a convention uh, is called Wolfpack, and they have far less states. I believe maybe three <laughs> or four named. states. That's appropriately yeah. named. Yeah, the Wolfpack. Yeah. <laughs> and and actually, the Wolfpack organization is very interesting because uh, it's um, the creator of that organization. The founder is Senk Uger. Who's the host of the Young Turks program? Oh yeah, and, yeah I, uh, know thank- him. I, I call him uh, Stink Uger, and I call him the program the Young Turds. But yeah, I- <laughs> so, so he wants a convention. He got the idea for a convention at, at, at an event called the Harvard, well, at the conference on the Constitutional Convention, the ConCon Con at Harvard University, that was co-hosted by uh, Mark Meckler from Tea Party Patriots, who later founded the Convention of States Organization, and also by a liberal Harvard law professor named Lawrence Lessig. Lawrence Lessig is the advisor to Wolfpack, and he is very good fr- very good friends with uh, Mark Meckler. In fact, Meckler has gone around the country touring with Lawrence Lessig, a liberal law professor who wants a convention, uh, debating in front of groups of people and convincing them that the way to solve all the problems is with the convention, where everyone on the left and the right can come together Sing Kumbaya, and we can, you know, um, fix the problems of campaign finance reform and and balanced budgets, you know. But the thing is, when you look at Lawrence Lessig, he wrote a paper in 1993 about the subject of translation, and he argued that the U.S. Constitution, as written, should be rewritten because it's written in a language that we no longer understand. So in 1993, (laughs) Lawrence Lessig called for a brand new constitution. He's the lead guy, along with Senk Uger promoting the convention for Wolfpack. And he's really close friends with Mark Meckler. So when Mark Meckler tries to accuse the John Birch Society of being on the side of the left because we oppose the convention that he's peddling, he he's actually the one going around with Lawrence Lessig, uh, an avowed leftist who ran for president, by the way, as a Democrat in the um, in the 2016 election and, and failed, and also who's a, who attended a Bilderberg Group meeting, Lawrence Lessig. So wow. this is the kind of company that Mark Meckler keeps in peddling the idea of a convention. And, and Mark Meckler, you said it was a Tea Party? <clears throat> I don't know. I'm, I don't remember. He, yeah, he started the Tea Party oh, Patriots okay. organization before he left that right. to start the uh, Convention of States project in 2013. So that was my problem with the Tea Party from the very beginning. Uh, you know, taxed enough already. Okay, well, you know, uh, what, what is your solution? And they didn't have any solution. I mean, there was a, it was just a... You know, taxes are too high. You know, it's like the guy that uh, ran in uh, for an election. I forget what he's running for uh, in New York. And it's like, the rent's too damn high. That's all he would say, you know. And, and it's like, okay, so what do you want to do about it? Uh, and and uh, are you talking about rent controls? Uh, are you talking about uh, getting rid of um, 
the government restrictions so people can have a higher supply of uh, places to live, you know, getting rid of some of that co- that's causing the uh, stuff to be more expensive. Uh, the Tea Party never really offered any solution. That's why, you know, you look at the John Birch Society. They said, all right, here's the problem. Here's the principles. Here's a solution. Tea Party is just like, well, I don't like this, you know, and, and it never had any intellectual core to it i I knew it wasn't good that's why i didn't even know who the guy was i never it's like well what are these people well they just think we're taxed enough already well it's like yeah everybody thinks that uh but um it was uh, essentially a a uh, non-solution from the very beginning so there's uh, essentially that group and then the um uh the uh, the uh, convention of uh, the cos is that convention of states i think is what it is uh, yep, and convention uh, of states. so there's the two of them. The convention of states has, has 19 states that have signed on to theirs. The other one has only four. Is there any other groups that are pushing for a uh, constitutional yeah. convention? There's a group called let us vote for a BBA. That's the one that has David Bidoff and David Walker. And David Walker is the individual who was a former me- member of a trilateral commission mm. and served in both the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. Um, so that group is, is, is fighting specifically for a BBA. Uh, and there are some other smaller groups that are around as well, but the, but really, the, it's the Convention of States is the largest organization uh, pushing for it on on the right, and the largest one on the left is one called Wolfpack, and okay. um, and there's also another other groups on the left like Move to Amend wants a campaign finance reform amendment, so they use uh, they, they say they want it through a convention, and then the the the, the very Marxist news magazine called The Nation. Uh, back in 2018, they had an issue where they came out in favor of a constitutional convention to have all of these changes to the Constitution, including abolishing the Electoral College, campaign finance reform, codifying abortion, and all these uh, leftist, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, wishes and so forth, uh, tr- transforming the U.S. formally into a democracy. And what's funny in that article in the Nation magazine from 2018, they quoted Mar- they, they had a little quote from Mark Meckler on the corner of the. Of the or the first or second page of the article to push forward the idea that yeah it, it's time to just change the rules and break down the the system completely and just start all over again. So uh, it's interesting that they would quote Mark Meckler in a, in a Marxist publication. Yeah, I think if uh, if the nation were able to uh, have a, a role in this, I think they wouldn't call it the Constitution; they called it a manifesto. Uh, <laughs> I would wind up with um, so. Uh, to uh, to get to this uh, point, so the, the real threat seems to be coming from the COS uh, because they're the ones who are starting to uh, uh, to get you know at nineteen uh, they have to have um, you know uh, what what is the number 34. they've got thirty four so they still got a ways to go. Uh, how does it look in terms of the remaining uh, states, the remaining fifteen that they've got to have? Yeah, they Mark Meckler uh, in his in recent interviews he's discussed that they are going to uh, target states like Virginia, which they expect uh, to have both legislatures be Republican because th- they typically go after the Republican uh, legislature-controlled states. So they're going to focus on states like Virginia, Montana, South Dakota. Of course, they tried it several times in a row to get it passed in places like South Dakota and Montana, and each time have failed uh, to do so. Not because the Democrats stopped it. Uh, but because conservative constitutional Republicans stood up against it in the state of South Dakota, when uh, constitutionalists defeated it there in that state, Mark Meckler went on the radio on uh, Mark Levin's program, actually crying like a baby, discussing how they wouldn't even uh, they wouldn't even debate the subject. They wouldn't even uh, debate the bill, which is ironic because in that same state of South Dakota, um, uh, one of our uh, JBS constitutional educators and experts 
and former regional field director for the John Birch Society, Robert Brown, who's uh, who's done so many videos on this topic for us on the ConCon. He's an expert on the field. Uh, he has challenged Mark Meckler to a debate on multiple occasions, and Mark Meckler has refused. Um, <laughs> and and there are other friends on our side who have likewise challenged Mark Meckler to a debate, like Sean Meehan of, of a good, very good organization that we recommend called Guard uh, Guarding the Constitution. Sean Meehan has uh, challenged Mark Meckler to a debate, and Mark Meckler has refused. So Mark Meckler will will sound like he, you know th- this is this is the right solution, but when it comes to actually debating the, the individuals. Uh, who can challenge him on it, he, he runs away in the other direction. And right now he's got former U.S. Senator Rick Santorum uh, peddling the convention alongside of him. And when you look at Rick Santorum's voting record, go to the freedomindex.org or thenewamerican.com. Click on the Freedom Index, type in the name Richard Santorum in there, and you'll see his Freedom Index score was dismal in the 60 percentile area. That's 63, 65, 68 percentile area. Uh, when you look at his votes, this was a guy voting for unbalanced budgets, for uh, massive deficit spending, and now he's going around saying, "Oh, the problem is that you know we we, we don't have these amendments in the Constitution." It was the lack of amendments <laughs> that caused me to be so reckless in the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put me in there, and we'll get this fixed. Now, of course, you know the one organization, uh, uh, let's vote for a, a balanced budget amendment. They're single issue. Uh, but the Council of uh, Council of States um, or Convention of States, uh, they they're not single issue. They've got several different issues. What are the other issues that they've got besides the balanced budget amendment? Yeah, so they have they have a balanced budget amendment, also fiscal restraints. They have the term limits for. Um, it's funny they, they don't specifically say term limits on Congress. Well, they do say term limits on Congress, but they also talk about term limits for members of the federal government which could be interpreted to mean the bureaucracy, which they're not really terms. So how do you term them out? But mm-hmm. nevertheless, that's that's one thing Meckler's talked about. But some on the left could jump on that because there's many on the left who've been saying, we need to term limit the Supreme Court now that it's mostly uh, Republican appointed uh, justices. Uh, so, so there are Democrats who certainly jump on board with that one. And the other uh, big one in the Convention of States uh, application is it very vaguely worded as, uh, limiting the scope and jurisdiction of the federal government. And, and as um, as Robert Brown has explained in our JBS videos in the past, you uh, a limit doesn't necessarily mean that it's lower. You can raise the limitation of the government's power. It doesn't always mean you can lower it. So Mark Meckler, he'll go around these interviews saying, oh, if they try to increase the scope of the government, well, that'll be thrown out because it's not germane. Well, I, the question I have to him is who will throw it out? He assumes, and he wants his supporters and those watching him to assume that the convention will be controlled by uh, conservative Republicans only. No Democrats will attend. And if Democrats do attend the convention, they're just going to go along with whatever the Republicans are doing, and they'll be absolutely powerless because of the letter of the application says, oh, it has to be germane to only this, as if Meckler's interpretation or supposed interpretation is the only interpretation that will be there. Look, if there's really a convention... Uh, states like California are going to send delegates, states like Michigan, states like Hawaii, New York, Rhode Island, uh, New Jersey. They're not going to send cons- cons- constitutional Republicans, even so-called. Re- yep. well, it looks like we had a, a freeze there, um, but uh, that was an excellent point he uh, finished up on. I had a couple other questions I wanted to ask him, but uh, see if you can uh, reestablish contact with him. 
because uh, it looks like we lost that. Uh, but that's exactly the point. When he talks about Rick Santorum, big advocate now for the uh, Constitutional Convention, uh, because we've got to have a balanced budget, and yet he never voted for it. Uh, these people don't support the Constitution when they're there. Uh, there is an alternative motive of this, and I think that is a very dangerous thing. And again, I think the reason I wanted to have uh, Christian Gomez on was because uh, New American, I think, has been really spot on and taking this from the center, and the issue is one of education. If you really understand the history of this, if you understand how this can just completely go off the rails and, and the danger of this, and I'll just say this, uh, just as I said yesterday, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't matter. We don't have a constitution right now and they're not following it. And of course they don't follow it to nullify, uh, laws that are happening out there, but it is important for us. Okay. We do have him back. Okay, good. Let's, let's go back. Uh, we lost you there for a second, uh, Christian. Um, but, uh, go ahead and continue where you were. Uh, we were talking about, uh, the conventions. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know what happened with my internet connection. But anyway, what I was saying was that um, you're going to have a lot of blue states, New York, et cetera, send delegates to such a convention. And even the so-called red states that we think are so conservative. If you look at the leadership of a lot of the legislatures of those states, you have a lot of, you know, rhino establishment uh, people in charge. In a state like Wisconsin, we have, which is where JBS is, uh, our headquarters, Robin Voss is our uh, um, assembly speaker. And he is a, a deeply part of the establishment. He's someone who, uh, the day after he won his primary uh, not too long ago, he shut down all of the investigations into the 2020 election. Um, so these are the kind of people who would be in charge of sending Republican delegate, assuming the Convention of States is accurate in their assessment that only state legislators will be delegates. Because Article 5 doesn't say it will be state legislators. But, um, it could, you know, there's, uh, there's other methods to consider. But nevertheless... Uh, the convention isn't going to be controlled by only the most conservative Republicans. Uh, uh, you know, we, look at how most states reacted to the COVID tyranny. Most state legislatures did not push against their governors. Most state legislatures did nothing all these years about, you mentioned before abortion, and how the 10th Amendment and, and even Article 6 of the Constitution duty bounds them to nullify unconstitutional federal acts. For all these years and decades, state legislators have sat down and let the federal government uh, control the show. So would state legislators, assuming that they're even the delegates, would they even uh, restrain the federal government as we're supposed to believe? Of course not. They haven't stood up before. They're not going to stand up all of a sudden now. That's a good example. You, when we look at 2020, uh, you take, uh, I think, one of the best examples of that. I've, I've mentioned to people many times because I want to get people over this idea. Well, it was just the Democrat governors who did it to us. It's like, no, the money was coming from Trump. He kept the money coming, so he agreed with it. But if you look at Idaho, for example, Brad uh, Little, who is the governor there, uh, was given money from the federal government from Trump that was several times the entire budget of the state. And it was to be used at his own personal discretion. And so when the Republican legislature that was not meeting that year, and it's interesting that they chose a year in which a lot of Republican legislatures were not meeting, uh, several of them, like uh, Idaho and Texas, only meet every other year. So they were going to come back to stop this uh, emergency order that was there. And he told them they couldn't come back. And so they didn't come back. And then he wrote some legislation for them, which was really very bad, and told them to come back. And they rubber stamped it. So... Having a Republican governor, having a Republican legislature didn't do anything for us throughout 2020. Uh, just a handful of people. And when you look at the trillions of dollars that were spent, Christian, you only had one congressman who stood up to that at the time, and that was uh, Thomas Massey. And what happened to him? 
well, you know, Trump was so furious at him, he wanted to primary him out. But all the rest of the people just rubber stamped trillions of dollars for to subsidize all these unconstitutional things that are being forced on us in 2020. That's what people need to think about when they think about a constitutional convention. You know, forget about the Democrats. Of course, the Democrats are going to have a big say, as you pointed out. But just take a look even at your Republicans and how you were betrayed in 2020. I think that's one of the key things to remember, isn't it? Yeah. When you look at just look at who's supporting the convention, look at which Republicans are supporting it and which are the Republicans opposing it. When you look at the Republicans supporting it, people like Rick Santorum, David Walker, um, uh, people like uh, uh, Jim DeMint. These are people whose voting records are not constitutionalists. When you look at those who oppose this thing, like Thomas Massey, he opposes the convention of states, constitutional convention, uh, to be accurate in the terminology. Uh, he opposes it. He's one of the most constitutional-rated uh, members of, of the U.S. Congress. Also, even former, uh, the late U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater, he warned against calling a constitutional convention in the 70s when uh, states like Arizona, his home state, wanted one for just a balanced budget amendment. He strictly warned that you'd have everyone up, uh, left and right, up and down, trying to get their two bits in the convention, and that he doubted that whether our republic could even survive That's right. coming out of a constitutional convention. That's right. So... That's yeah. the kind of people who oppose this thing. Goldwater, uh, Thomas Massey, the John Birch Society, Phyllis Shafley, Eagle Forum, um, and our good friends even at the Guard of the Constitution, like Sean Meehan and uh, Robert Brown with the John Birch Society. These are constitutional folks here, and we're the ones warning you, hey, let's not do this. If you, if you love the Constitution, don't open up Pandora's box to allow the left and the rhino establishment uh, fiddle with it, because it's not going to be good for us at the end. I agree. I agree. I, I look at this, and, and as I've said many times, uh, a lot of people will say, why are you even talking about the Constitution? Because it's gone, right? Uh, and, and But it's there as uh, for two reasons. It's there as a model of what we need to get back to, number one. And number two, because these people have ignored it, they don't have any authority. And that's one of the things that we need to understand, that uh, uh, authority is on the side of the Constitution. They still acknowledge that, and they still swear to uphold that as a condition of their office. So when they don't uphold it, uh, that gives us uh, the uh, moral high ground, which is very important, that we're acting in a moral and legal way. And it is a uh, great model for us to try to get back to. Uh, but the, the danger is that they will take that away. And if they take that away and we no longer have that to even hold up as a mirror to their hypocrisy, as a mirror to their rebellion and their oath-breaking, if we don't have that anymore because they completely rewrite it to, their, to, to suit themselves, uh, that is a, a very dangerous situation uh, indeed. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, Christian. And um, thank you for what the, uh, the newamerican.com, uh, where you're writing there, John Burr Society, uh, you guys have uh, really been on point in terms of defending the Constitution from this very dangerous rewrite. Uh, they're, they're doing enough to rewrite it and ignore it as it is, but we don't want to make that an official thing, which is, I think, what, what would come out of this. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll re be right back. I had some other things that I wanted to say. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. 
The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word ABOVE to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text ABOVE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word ABOVE to 323232. Text ABOVE to 323232. That bell means there's a new tire store in Valparaiso. Bell Tire. It also means you'll get up to $180 off a set of four tires at our grand opening sale. We want you to come get tires, but we don't want you to come back until you have to. That's why Bell Tire will give you up to $180 off four tires, plus more free lifetime tire services to help you get more out of your tires. $180 off four tires. What are you waiting for? Come get the lowest tire price, period, at Bell Tire. See storebelltire.com for details. Now open on Portersvale Boulevard. About Bitcoin, I had a, a listener uh, send a, a very good letter about the history of Bitcoin that I think all of you are going to find interesting. So stay with us. Uh, we'll be right back. Listening to the David Knight Show. Before we get into this, and I do have a letter uh, that uh, I thought was very good, uh, written by a guy who's a software engineer about Bitcoin. Uh, it brings up some good points. Um, I want to thank some of the people who have tipped on Rockfan Aaron Johnson. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. He says, I'm a daily listener. I haven't missed an episode since the aftermath, uh, since aftermath. Um, I'm assuming that's aftermath FM as opposed to the aftermath of my, <laughs> leaving my former employer. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, John 149, thank you for the tip. He says, uh, thank you, David, from Western North Carolina mountains. The fair was great last night. Oh, well, I didn't even know there was a fair going on. So I'll have to uh, look that up. Maybe there'll be something this weekend. I do know that there is a, there's like a bluegrass festival or something here in Tennessee uh, that is uh, not too far away from where we are this weekend. Uh, so uh, actually it starts tonight, I think is, is where it is, but I'll have to try to stop by there. Uh, and uh, Boss Chavez, thank you very much. I appreciate that tip as well. I want to talk a little bit about this um, uh, this email that was sent to me, and um, he identified himself as a software history uh, engineer. He says I've got a bit of uh, of history uh, about crypto, and and he's got some comments about some specific ones uh, about Monero, about Pirate Chain, uh, about uh, what is happening with the uh, proof of stake, 
and uh, how that kind of folds into things, and also about Ethereum and Bitcoin. He said on uh, January the 3rd, 2009, first block of Bitcoin was mined. The project was credited to the alias Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, the first block of the blockchain contains the text, the Times, uh, 3 January 2009, Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks. The first real transaction of Bitcoin was on May 22, 2010, with a now-famous purchase of two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. Okay, so that's maybe about $200 million, about $100 million of pizza. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto mined over a million Bitcoin on his CPU, and to this day, his coins remain on the blockchain untouched. Most people think that Satoshi's dead. That's why he never spent any of his coins. Uh, people don't understand their coins exist on the blockchain, and they can never leave the blockchain or be lost. The question is, do you know your private key in order to be able to move your coins? And so we've had a lot of people, I'll just add, who have uh, lost that. There's one individual who, uh, after it started taking off in value, he just thought it was a lark. He had him on a hard disk, threw away the computer, and he's now worth hundreds of millions of dollars. If he could find that uh, that disk drive, and he has offered uh, to pay millions of dollars to the garbage dump if they'll let him go through it with a fine-tooth comb to try to find that hard drive. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, and a lot of people have a lot of questions about whether Satoshi was even a real person or if it was an, uh, you know, some kind of a shadow uh, organization or uh, somebody setting things up like the CIA or whatever, but it, nevertheless, it is what it is. He, he points out Bitcoin mining is basically computers competing to process transactions. At any given time, there is a proof of unprocessed transactions, each with a tip. A miner needs to pick enough transactions to make a one megabyte, one megabyte block. Most likely, they will take the transactions with the biggest tips. Next, the miner needs to solve a hash using the chosen transactions. The first miner that solves a block broadcasts the answer and will receive the block reward. In the beginning, miners used CPUs to solve hashes. Later, people figured out how to use GPUs, graphic cards, to mine Bitcoin that are much faster. Finally, companies developed hardware that did nothing but mine Bitcoin. Uh, these are application-specific integrated circuits. Uh, these chips made GPU mining obsolete and made it so the average hobbyist could no longer mine. Most miners today join a mining pool. A pool combines hashes together, and the reward is split between everyone in the pool based on the number of hashes submitted. Because remember, if you, even if you're working on this thing and somebody else does it first, uh, all your work is not rewarded. Uh, so that's why they're pooling the resources together as well. Anyone that had Bitcoin before the split now had bit. Uh, sorry, I skipped this. In 2017, the Bitcoin network was experiencing very slow speeds. As the developers were divided about how to fix the issue, half of the developers wanted to change the size of the one megabyte block to eight megabytes. The other half wanted to push the transaction off to another sub-network and somehow uh, summarize them in, a, in the one megabyte, one, one megabyte block. Uh, this caused uh, Bitcoin to be split in two, with the eight meg solution being named Bitcoin Cash and the other keeping the original name. This created a war between some Bitcoin miners who backed Bitcoin Cash and the exchanges that backed Bitcoin by refusing to list Bitcoin Cash. Anyone that had Bitcoin before the split now had Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin. This is why it's unfair to call Bitcoin Cash 
an alternative coin, an altcoin. For me, Bitcoin Cash, he says, is the real Bitcoin. One of the main principles of Bitcoin was to be able to send money for almost anything. Uh, today, to send Bitcoin, or to send for almost nothing, rather. Today, to send Bitcoin costs about $10. However, to send Bitcoin Cash is merely pennies. They say Bitcoin Cash was a failure. However, people buying crypto are buying it as an investment. But what happens when people really start using it as currency? Especially if the transaction cost is just pennies. They say Bitcoin is not really a privacy coin. All the transactions on the block can be viewed by anyone. However, Bitcoin addresses are anonymous and anyone can create one or as many as they want. The only way it is not anonymous is if you have exchange associates, uh, the, uh, an exchange associates the address with your identity, which they're very uh, uh, eager to do now because of new regulations. A, a privacy coin keeps most of the information about the transaction hidden, so looking at the chain does not show where the money is going or how much. This may turn out not to be a good thing. Um, so, um, uh, the, uh, he says you can buy Monero, a, a privacy coin, on the exchange Kraken.com, and they will associate your identity with the coins you buy, therefore making the privacy point pointless. So you have to, where, at whatever point you jump into the exchange, that's really the issue. Uh, Monero is one of my favorite coins, but not for its privacy. He said the best thing about Monero is that it uses CPU mining, the random X algorithm that Monero uses can only be efficiently solved using CPUs. This is great because anyone with a decent CPU can mine Monero. You can't really make money mining Monero, but you, can, you get what you pay for in electricity back. This also helps keep away large mining facilities from monopolizing the mining. One thing to note about Monero is it is inflationary. There is no cap on the number of coins that will be created. Uh, then he goes to Pirate Chain. The code for Pirate Chain, this is another uh, one that was set up to uh, be uh, private. And um, so I've had a Pirate Chain um, individual on a couple of times to talk about. It. He says it's based on Zcash uh, that has a privacy option. The number of coins is capped at 200 million. However, 192 million have already been mined in four years. Bitcoin has a cap of 21 million and 19 million have been mined in 13 years. So 96% of Bitcoin, uh, of pirate chain coins have already been mined in only four years, whereas 90% of Bitcoins have been mined in 13 years. And uh, so he says another disappointing thing about pirate chain is its mining system called delayed proof of work. I think this post uh, from, um, and he's got a reference here, um, explains that very well. I didn't look that up to tell you about it, but I just wanted to put that in uh, to uh, give people kind of an overview of some of these issues and to show why uh, this is a bit of a risk because unless you know a lot of the details about uh, these other uh, issues and where they're going, it's a bit confusing for people to jump in on this. This is why uh, the uh, Bitcoin advocate said that may be one of the things about CBDC that is helpful because as it gets people involved and educated in how this is working, uh, they're going to see, as this guy says, uh, he likes Bitcoin uh, because, um, opposed to these other ones, because it is not changing as much. It's more malleable. Uh, he says, the only thing I have good to say about Ethereum is that it is profitable to mine with a GPU graphics processing unit. 
Well, it is coming. Uh, the CBDC is coming one way or the other because they are working on very uh, specific uh, ideas. They've already put out the, uh, uh, the feasibility studies, as I pointed out with the executive order six months ago. Those reports have landed. They're consolidating them, and they're going to uh, start to push that. Uh, but there's something else that landed this week that is very troubling. When I first saw this sent to me, I thought, well, is this a real executive order? Because it's so new that there's not a number associated with it yet. I think that maybe happens once it gets published. Uh, this is, an, and, and I think that's what's happening here, why I don't see a number on it. But I found it on whitehouse.gov. And so this is a real a executive order. It took, if you remember, the one that we talk about all the time, Trump's uh, executive order that was published on that Friday the 13th. They didn't record that until like the following Tuesday or Wednesday in the, in the Federal Register, and I think that's when it got a number. But this is the executive order that was dropped on Monday, this last Monday, September the 12th, from the Biden administration, Executive Order on Advancing Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing Innovation for a Sustainable, Safe, and Secure American Bioeconomy. And uh, so this executive order begins, by the authority vested in me as president of the Constitution. Well, I don't think there is authority in the Constitution for you to operate as a dictator, but of course there's been one executive order from Biden after the other, and in this long executive order, which is 17 printed pages, uh, there's a lot of references to uh, his previous executive orders that he's piggybacking on. And, of course, he's also piggybacked on at least one Trump executive order. But here's the gist of this. I'm not going to read you excerpts from all 17 pages. I'm just going to read you this one paragraph here uh, where he talks about uh, biotechnology and biomanufacturing. He refers to that as the bioeconomy and um, says it can be used to, ach to achieve our climate and energy goals, to improve food security and sustainability, to secure our supply chains, and to grow the economy across all of America. In other words, it's going to solve everything for us, right? What is this that he wants to do, though? And here's the, the core sentence that should concern you. Um, we need to develop genetic engineering technologies and techniques to be able to write circuitry for cells and predictably program biology in the same way that we write software and program computers. Now, when we said that about the mRNA injections, I call them genetic code injections. When we said that about the genetic code injections that Trump was pushing, oh, this is a conspiracy theory. This is disinformation. It's misinformation, all the rest of this stuff, even though I was reading it from Moderna's website. And that's exactly what they said. They said, well, you know, you're, you're, uh, we're going to reprogram the, the software in your cells. And that's exactly what this is about, but on a much, much bigger level. Uh, so we're just going to develop these techniques to write circuitry for cells and to program biology in the same way that we write software and program computers. And that's exactly what Moderna, that's how they explained what their mRNA technology was about, because that was what that company was founded to do. Uh, messenger uh, RNA or mode RNA. And that's the way they pronounced uh, their company's name when they first put it out there. They pronounced it mode RNA. And then they changed it to call it Moderna. And uh, so this is what he's talking about. Now, in this, the 17 pages of this, 
It is a sweeping initiative, just like CBDC, where he's got all the different government agencies that are under the executive branch, all of them involved. And in page after page after page, he talks about Secretary of Agriculture is going to do this. Secretary of Commerce is going to do this. The director of the National Science Foundation, this. And the Secretary of Energy, the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And then he gives them dates. And the vast majority of this detailed executive order to do this radical programming, uh, radical in both its extent and the core thing that it's doing, uh, the rest of this is about uh, schedules. Here's an example. Okay, within 100 days of receiving this report, such and such a branch is going to do this. The heads of the appropriate agencies and shall develop a plan and so forth. Within 90 days of the date of this order, the director of OMB is going to perform a budget crosscut to identify existing levels of agency spending on biotech. Within two years of this day, this order, these agencies, blah, blah, blah. Within 180 days of the date of this order, the president's council of advisors and so forth are going to do this. And on and on for 17 pages. It is a very detailed plan with a time path on it. But let's look at the time frame of this. It's not just that they want to roll this out in 90 days or 180 days, um, two years. But this goes back, one of the orders that he references in this is an executive order that was signed by President Trump June of 2019. And if you remember, it was in May of 2019 that President Trump was saying, they got to get the shots. This thing is going around. I've played that for you many times. Where he was talking about mandates, vaccine mandates being imposed against people's religious exemptions. Specifically, to mandate, to say they've got to get the shots, even though uh, it was a private school, a private religious school. They didn't care. You're going to have to get the shot. We don't care about it being private. We don't care about your religious liberty. You're going to get the shot. That's what Trump was saying. That's why it was so reprehensible in uh, May of 2019. The next month, uh, this is the uh, headline from the Associated Press. Trump orders a simpler path for genetically engineered food. This executive order that he signed uh, June 2019. Uh, less than a year later, he's going to be pushing a genetically engineered uh, or, or a vaccine to genetically engineer your body, the genetic code injection. And uh, so uh, this was referenced in uh, Biden's new uh, GMO uh, executive order for the bioeconomy. You see, this is the left-right march into the dystopian future that they have des designed. And it's important that you understand so that you don't get had that uh, Trump is a part of this. Yeah, we can get all caught up in the Game of Thrones and it's like, yeah, the, the, the stuff that they're doing to Trump is pretty bold, it's pretty criminal, and it's out there. But this is just the two sides fighting each other to see who's going to control uh, the levers to push us into the same thing. Just uh, benefiting, uh, different people and doing it in slightly different ways and slightly different speeds, perhaps. But Trump can be as dangerous, if not more so, because you don't understand, uh, whose side he's on. Trump wants to make it easier, says AP, 
for genetically engineered plants and animals to enter the food supply. And he signed an executive order Tuesday directing federal agencies to simplify the regulatory maze for producers. So you could look at it as kind of uh, operational warp speed for genetically engineered food, which is a key part of this uh, executive order from Biden. And so both of them are on the same page. We both have, they, we got to get this genetic code injection into your body and we got to get this genetically engineered food out there and let's do everything we can to, to get everything clear of the way, you know, prepare the way. And this is kind of a, Trump is kind of a John the Baptist of the uh, Davos cult, right? <laughs> clear the way, uh, prepare the way every, uh, Valley will be exalted, every mountain made low to run through this agenda for Davos, for Klaus Schwab, the rest of these people. Last week, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, this is going back to June 2019 under Trump, uh, the Department of Agriculture proposed changing its regulations in a way that would mean much of the genetically modified corn and soy grown in the U.S. today would not necessarily have been subject to any special oversight. Same thing he was demanding with the genetic code injections, just... Sweep it away. Crops produced with newer gene editing technologies also would not automatically be subject to special oversight under the proposed rule unless they posed a risk as plant pests. Companies have said that gene editing allows them to more precisely alter plants and animals and that what they're doing could theoretically be achieved through conventional breeding. No, it can't. See, this is muddying the water and it's outright lying to you about what this is. Many people don't understand how genetic modification differs from something like selective breeding. Right, look at the genetic uh, variation that we have in dogs, for example. And you get teeny tiny dogs, really big dogs, and everything else in between, and they have different uh, looks and different special capabilities and stuff, and that was all done by selective breeding. But they're all dog kinds. They're all like dogs. They're all dogs. A dog is very different from a cat, right? you got all different sizes of cats in, in nature even, you know, from house cats to lions and tigers and panthers and all this other, but they're all cats. Uh, and so you got a big variety of cats, big variety of dogs and on and on within a kind, within a kind of animal. Now, uh, within a kind of animal, you can get some uh, crossbreeding and that type of thing. And you, there's a lot of genetic uh, variation. And so they can specifically do that. But what you can't do is crossbreed and selectively breed plants and animals together. You can't cross those together, even though they both have DNA. That's what the genetic modification is, to create these chimera, which can even be completely different kinds of animals, but even mixing animals with plants. And of course, we don't want any oversight to get in our way. Now, that's it for the program today. Thanks for joining us. dumb down our children. Commons Project, to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, 
deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com Bell means there's a new tire store in Valparaiso. Bell Tire. It also means you'll get up to $180 off a set of four tires at our grand opening sale. We want you to come get tires, but we don't want you to come back until you have to. That's why Bell Tire will give you up to $180 off four tires, plus more free lifetime tire services to help you get more out of your tires. $180 off four tires. What are you waiting for? Come get the lowest tire price, period, at Bell Tire. See store at belltire.com for details. Now open on Portersvale Boulevard.